Chapter 4. The Unknown Things, Akeley wrote, in a script grown pitifully tremulous, had began to close in on him with a wholly new degree of determination. The nocturnal barkings of dogs whenever the moon was dim or absent was hideous now, and there had been attempts to molest him on the lonely roads he had traversed by the day. He had found a tree trunk, had landed in his path, at a point where the highway ran through a deep patch of woods, while the savage barking of the two great dogs he had with him told all too well the things which must have been lurking near. What would have happened if the dogs had not been there? He did not dare guess, but he never went out without at least two of his faithful and powerful pack. The other road experiences had occurred on August 5th and 6th, a shot grazing his cat on one occasion, and the barking of the dogs telling of unholy woodland presence of the other. On August 15th, I received a frantic letter which disturbed me greatly, and which made me wish Akeley could put aside his lonely reticence and call in the aid of the law. There had been frightful happenings on the night of the 12th through 13th, bullets flying outside of the farmhouse, and three of the twelve great dogs had been found shot dead in the morning. There were myriads of claw prints in the road with human prints of Walter Brown among them. Akeley had started to telephone to Rattleboro for more dogs, but the wire had gone dead before he had a chance to say much. Later, he came to Battleboro in his car and learned that linemen had found the main telephone cable nearly cut to a point where it ran through the deserted hills north of Newfane. But he was about to start with four fine new dogs and several cases of ammunition for his big game repeating rifle. The letter is written at the post office in Brattleboro and came through to me without delay. My attitude towards the matter was by this time quickly slipping from a scientific to an alarmed personal one. I was afraid for Akeley in his remote, lonely farmhouse, half afraid for myself because of my now definite connection with strange hill problems. The things were reaching out, so would it suck me in and engulf me? In replying to his letter, I urged him to seek help and hinted I might take action myself if he did not. I spoke of visiting Vermont in person in spite of his wishes, and of helping him explain the situation to the proper authorities. In return, however, I received only a telegram from, from Bellows Fall, which read thus, Appreciate your position, but can do nothing. Take no action yourself, for it could only harm both. Wait for explanation. Henry Akeley. But the affair was steadily deepening. I received a shaky note from Akeley with the astonishing news that he had not only never sent the wire, but he never received the letter from me, to which it was an obvious reply. Hasty inquiries by him at Bellow Falls had brought out that message was deposited by a strange sandy-haired man with a curiously thick droning voice, though more than this 
he did not learn. The clerk shooed him the original text, as sprawled in pencil, by the sender. But the handwriting was wholly unfamiliar. It was unnoticeable, but the signature was misspelled. A-K-E-L-Y, without the second E. Certainly, conjectures were inevitable, but amidst the obvious crisis, he did not stop to elaborate upon them. He spoke of the death of more dogs and the purchase of still others, and of exchange of gunfire, which had become a settled feature each moonless night. Brown's prints, and the prints of at least one or two more shod human figures, were now found regularly among the claw prints in the road, and the back of the farmhouse. It was Akeley admitted, a pretty bad business, and before long he would probably have to go to live with his California son, whether or not he could sell the old place. But it was not easy to leave the only spot one could only think of home. He must try to hang on a little longer. Perhaps he could scare off the intruders, especially if he openly gave up all further attempts to penetrate their secrets. Writing Akeley once, I reviewed my offers of aid and spoke again of visiting him and helping him convince the authorities of his dire peril. In his reply, he seemed less set against the plan as his past attitude would have led me to predict. But he said he would like to hold off a little while longer, long enough to get his things in order and reconcile himself with the idea of leaving an almost morbidly cherished place. People looked sconce at his studies and speculations, and it would be better to get quietly off without setting the countryside in a turmoil and creating widespread doubts of his own sanity. He had enough, he admitted, but he wanted to make a dignified exit if he could. The letter reached me on the 28th of August, and I prepared and mailed encouraging reply as I could. Apparently the encouragement had effect for Wakely with fewer terrors to report when he acknowledged my notes. He was not very optimistic though and expressed the belief that it was only the full moon season which was holding the creatures off. He hoped that it had not been many densely clouded nights and talked vaguely of boarding at Batterboro when the moon waned. Again, I wrote him encouragingly, but on September 5th, there came a fresh communications which had obviously crossed my letter in the mails, and to this I could not give any such hopeful response. In view of the importance, I believed I had better give him a give it in full, as best I could do from memory, of the shaky script. It ran substantially as followed. Monday. Dear Wilmarth, a rather discouraging P.S. to my last. Last night was thickly cloudy, though no rain, and not a bit of moonlight got through. Things were pretty bad, and I think the end is getting near, in spite of all we have hoped. After midnight, something landed on the roof of the house, and the dogs all rushed up to see what it was. I could hear them snapping and tearing around and then one managed to get on the roof by jumping from the low L. There was a terrible fight up there, and I heard frightful buzzing, which I'll never forget. And then there was a shocking smell. 
About the same time, bullets came through the window and nearly grazed me. I think the main line of the hill creatures had got close to the house when the dogs divided because of the roof business. What was up there, I don't know yet. But I'm afraid the creatures are learning to steer better with their space wings. I put out the light and used the windows for loopholes, and raked all along the house with rifle fire aimed just high enough not to hit the dogs. That seemed to end the business, but the morning I found great pools of blood in the yard, beside pools of green sticky stuff that had the worst odor I have ever smelled. I climbed up on the roof and found more of the sticky stuff there. Five of the dogs were killed. I'm afraid I hit one myself by aiming too low, for he was shot in the back. Now I am setting the pains the shots broke, and I'm going to Battleboro for more dogs. Guess the men at the kennels think I'm crazy. We'll drop another note later. Suppose I'll be ready for moving in a week or two, though it nearly kills me to think of it. Hastily, Akeley. But this was not the only letter from Akeley to Crossmine. On the next morning, September 6th, still another came. This time, a frantic scrawl unnerved me and put me at a loss what to say or do next. Again, I cannot do better than quote the text as faithfully as memory would let me. Tuesday. Clouds didn't break, so no moon again. And going to the wane anyhow. I'd have the house wired for electricity and put in a searchlight if I didn't know they'd cut the cables as fast as they could be mended. I think I'm going crazy. It may be that all I've ever written to you is a dream or madness. It was bad enough before, but this time it was too much. They talked to me last night, talked in that cursed buzzing voice, and told me things that I dare not repeat to you. I heard them plainly over the barking of the dogs, and once when they were drowned out, a human voice helped them. Keep out of this, Wilmarth. It was worse than either you or I ever suspected. They don't mean to let me get to California now. They want to take me off alive, or what theoretically and mentally amounts to alive. Not only to Yagoth, but beyond that, way outside the galaxy and possibly beyond the last curved rim of space. I told them I wouldn't go where they wish, or in the terrible way they proposed to take me. But I'm afraid it will be no use. My place is so far out that they may come by day as well as by night, before long. Six more dogs killed, and I felt presences all along the wooded parts of the road when I drove the Battleboro today. It was a mistake for me to try and send you that phonograph record from Blackstone. Better smash the record before it's too late. We'll drop you another line tomorrow if I'm still here. Wish I could arrange to get my books and things to Battleboro and board there. I would run off without anything if I could, but something inside my mind holds me back. I can slip out to Battleboro where I ought to be safe, but I feel just as much a prisoner there as at the house and it seems to know that I couldn't get much farther, even if I dropped everything and tried. It is horrible. Don't get mixed up in this. Yours, Akeley. I did not sleep at all, the night after receiving the terrible thing, and was utterly baffled, as Akeley remaining degree of sanity. The substance of the note was wholly insane, yet the manner of expression in his view of all that has gone before had a grimly potent quality of convincingness. Wednesday. W. 
Your letter came, but it's no use to discuss anything more. I am fully resigned. Wonder that I have even enough willpower to left to fight them off. Can't escape even if I were willing to give up everything and run. They'll get me. I had a letter from them yesterday. RFD man brought it while I was at Battleboro. Typed and postmarked Bellows Falls. Tells what they want to do with me. I can't repeat it. Look out for yourself too. Smash that record. Cloudy nights keep up and moon waning all the time. Wish I dared to get help. It might brace up my willpower. But everyone who would dare come at all would call me crazy unless there happened to be some proof. Couldn't ask people to come for no reason at all. I'm all out of touch with everybody and have been for years. But I haven't told you the worst, Wilmarth. Brace up to read this. For it will give you a shock. I'm telling you the truth, though. It is this. I have seen and touched one of the things, or part of one of the things. God, man, but it was awful. It was dead, of course. One of the dogs had it, and I found it near the kennel this morning. I tried to save it in the woodshed to convince people of the whole thing, but it had all evaporated in a few hours. Nothing left. You know, all those things in the rivers were only seen the first morning after the flood. And here's the worst. I tried to photograph it for you, but when I developed the film, there wasn't anything visible except the woodshed. What can the thing have been made of? I saw it and felt it, and they all leave footprints, and it was surely made of matter. But what kind of matter? The shape can't be described. It was a great crab with lots of pyramided, fleshy rings or knots of thick, ropey stuff covered with feelers where the man's head would be. That green, sticky stuff is its blood, or juice, and there are more of them due on Earth any minute. Walter Brown is missing, hasn't been seen loafing around any of his usual corners in the villages hereabouts. I must have got him with one of my shots, though the creatures always seem to try to take their dead and wounded away. Got into town this afternoon without any trouble, but I'm afraid they're beginning to hold off because they're sure of me. I'm writing this in Battleboro, P.O. This may be goodbye. If it is, write my son George, good enough, Akeley. 176 Pleasant Street, San Diego, California. But don't come up here. Write the boy if you don't hear from me in a week, and watch the papers for news. I'm going to play my last two cards now. If I have the willpower left, first to try poison gas on the things. I've got the right chemicals and have fixed masks for myself and the dogs. And then if that doesn't work, tell the sheriff. They can lock me in a madhouse if they want to. It'll be better than what the other creatures would do. Perhaps I can get them to pay attention to the prints around the house. They are faint, but I can find them every morning. Suppose, though, police would say I fake them somehow. Or they must all think I'm a queer character. Must try to have a state policeman spend a night here and see for himself. Though it would be just like the creatures learn about it and hold off the night. They cut my wires whenever I try to telephone in the night. The linemen think it is very queer. They may testify for me if they don't go, and imagine I cut them myself. I haven't tried to keep them repaired for over a week now. I could get some of the ignorant people to testify for me about the reality of the horrors, but everybody laughs at what they say. And anyways, they have shunned my place for so long that they don't know any of the new events. You couldn't get one of those run-down farmers to come within a mile of my house for the love or money. The mail carrier hears what they say and jokes me about it, 
God, if only I dared tell them how real it is. I think I'll try and get him to notice the prince, but he comes in the afternoon, and they're usually about gone by that time. If I keep one by setting it in a box or pan over it, he'd think surely it was fake or a joke. Wish I hadn't gotten to be such a hermit. Folks don't drop around as they used to. I never dared shoo the black stone or the Kodak pictures or play that record to anybody but the ignorant people. The others would say I fake the whole business and do nothing but laugh. But I may yet try chewing the pictures. They give those claw prints clearly, even if the things that made them can't be photographed. What a shame nobody else saw that thing this morning before it went to nothing. But I don't know as I care. After what I've been through, a madhouse is a good place to stay as any. The doctors can help me make up my mind as to get away from this house. And that is all that will save me. Write my son George if you don't hear soon. Goodbye. Smash that record. And don't mix up in this. Yours, Akeley. The letter, frankly, purged me into the blackest of terror. I did not know what to say in answer, but scratched off some incoherent words of advice and encouragement and sent them by registered mail. I recall urging Akeley to move to Batterboro at once and place himself under protection of the authorities, adding that I could come to that town with the phonograph record and help convince the courts of insanity. It was time to, I think, I wrote to alarm the people generally against this thing in their midst. It will be observed at this moment all of the stress of my own belief in all Akeley had told and claimed was virtually complete. Though I did not think his failure to get a picture of the dead monster was not due to any freak of nature, but to some excited slip of his own. Chapter 5. Then... Apparently crossing my incoherent notes and reaching me Sunday afternoon, September 8th, came the curiously different and calming letter neatly typed on a new machine. That strange letter of reassurance and invitation, which must have marked so prodigiously a transition in the whole nightmare drama of the Lonely Hills. Again, I will quote from memory, seeking for special reasons to preserve as much of the flavor of the style as I can. It was postmarked, Bellow Falls, and the signature as well. The body of the letter was typed, as frequent with beginners in typing. The text, though, was marvelously accurate for the Tyro's work, and I concluded that Akeley must have used a machine at some previous period, perhaps in college. To say that the letter relieved me would be only fair, yet beneath my relief, laid a stratum of uneasiness. If Akeley had been sane in his terror, he was now sane in his deliverance. And it was a sort of improved rapport mentioned. What was it? The entire thing implied such a diametrical reversal of Akeley's previous attitude. But here was the substance of the text, carefully transcribed from a memory in which I take some pride. My dear Wilmerth, it gives me great pleasure to be able to set you at rest regarding all the silly things I've been writing to you. I say silly, although by that I mean my frightened attitude rather than my descriptions of certain phenomena. Those phenomena are real and important enough. My mistake had been in establishing an anomalous attitude toward them. 
I think I mentioned that my strange visitors were beginning to communicate with me, and to attempt such communication. Last night, this exchange of speech became actual. In response to certain signals, I admitted to the house, a messenger from those outside, a fellow human, let me hasten to say. He told me much that neither you nor I had begun to guess, and shewed clearly how totally we had misjudged and misinterpreted the purpose of the Outer Ones in maintaining their secret colony on this planet. It seems that the evil legends about what they have offered to men, and what they wish in connection with the Earth, are wholly the result of an ignorant misconception of allegorical speech. Speech, of course, molded by cultural backgrounds and thought habits vastly different from anything we dream of. My own conjectures, I freely own, shot as widely past the mark as any of the guesses of illiterate farmers and natives. What I had thought morbid and shameful and ignominious was in reality awesome and mind-expanding and even glorious my previous estimate being merely the phase of man's eternal tendency to hate and fear and shrink from the utterly different. Now I regret the harm I have inflicted upon these alien and incredible beings in the course of our nightly skirmishes. If only I had consented to talk peacefully and reasonably with them in the first place. But they bear me no grudge, their emotions being organized very differently from ours. It is their misfortune to have had their human agents in Vermont some very inferior specimens. The late Walter Brown, for example, he prejudiced me vastly against them. Actually, they have never knowingly harmed men, but have often been cruelly wronged and spied upon by our species. There is a whole secret cult of evil men, a man of your mystical erudition, will understand me when I link them with Hastur and the Yellow Sign devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. It is against these aggressors, not against normal humanity, that the drastic precautions of the Outer Ones are directed. Incidentally, I learned that many of our lost letters were stolen not by the Outer Ones, but by the emissaries of this malign cult. All the Outer Ones' wish of man is peace and non-molestation, and an increasing intellectual rapport. This latter is absolutely necessary now that our inventions and devices are expanding our knowledge and motions, and making it more and more impossible for the Outer Ones' necessary outposts to exist secretly on this planet. The alien beings desire to know mankind more fully, and to have a few of mankind's philosophic and scientific leaders know more about them. With such an exchange of knowledge, all perils will pass, and a satisfactory modus vivendi be established. The very idea of any attempt to enslave or degrade mankind is ridiculous. As a beginning of this improved rapport, the Outer Ones have naturally chosen me, whose knowledge of them is already so considerable as their primary interpreter on Earth. Much has told me last night, facts of the most stupendous and vista-opening nature, and more will be subsequently communicated to me both orally and in writing. I shall not be called upon to make any trip outside just yet, though I shall probably wish to do that later on, employing special means in transcending everything which we have hitherto been accustomed to regard as human experience. 
My house will be besieged no longer. Everything has reverted to normal, and the dogs will have no further occupation. In place of terror, I have given a rich boon of knowledge and intellectual adventure which few other mortals have ever shared. The outer beings are perhaps the most marvelous organic things in or beyond all space and time. Members of a cosmos-wide space with all other life forms are merely degenerate variants. They are more vegetable than human, a somewhat fungoid structure, though the presence of a chlorophyll-like substance and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true chromophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space, with electrons having wholly different vibration rate. This is why the beings cannot be photographed on ordinary camera films and plates of our known universe, even though our eyes can see them. With proper knowledge, however, any good chemist can make a photographic emulsion which could record their images. The genus is unique in its ability to traverse the heatless and airless interstellar void in full corporeal form, and some of its variants cannot do this without mechanical aid or curious surgical transpositions. Only a few species have the either-resisting wings characteristic of the Vermont variety. Those inhabiting certain remote peaks in the Old World were brought in other ways their external resemblance to animal life, and to the sort of structure we understand as material, is a matter of parallel evolution rather than of close kinship. Their brain capacity exceeds that of any other surviving life form, although the winged types of our hill country are by no means the most highly developed. Telepathy is their usual means of discourse, though they have rudimentary vocal organs, which, after a slight operation, for a surgery is an incredible expert in everyday thing among them, can roughly duplicate the screech of certain types of organisms as still use speech. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune and the ninth in distance from the sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as a goth in certain ancient and forbidden writings, and it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yagoth when the other outer ones wish them to do so, but Yagoth, of course, is only the stepping stone. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule, which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity, is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. And as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to not more than 50 other men since the human race has existed. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune and the ninth in distance from the sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as a goth in certain ancient and forbidden writings. 
and it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yagoth when the other outer ones wish them to do so. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule, which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity, is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. And as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to not more than 50 other men since the human race has existed. The train service to Battleboro is not bad. You can get a timetable in Boston, take the B&M to Greenfield, then change for a brief remainder of the way. I suggest you're taking the convenient 4.10pm standard from Boston. This gets to Greenfield at 7.35, and at 9.19, a train leaves there which reaches Battleboro at 10.01. That is weekdays. Let me know the date, and I'll have my car on hand at the station. Pardon this typed letter, but my handwriting has grown shaky as of late, as you know, and I don't feel equal to long stretches of script. I got this new corona in Battleboro yesterday, and it seems to work very well. Awaiting word and hoping to see you shortly with the photograph record and all my letters and the Kodak prints. I am yours in anticipation, Henry W. Akeley. To Albert N. Wilmarth, Esquire, Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts. The complexity of my emotions upon reading, rereading, and pondering over this strange and unlooked for letter is past adequate description. I have said that I was at once relieved and made uneasy, but this expresses only crudely the overtone of diverse and largely subconscious feelings which which comprise both the relief and the uneasiness. To begin with, Thing was so antipodally at variance with the whole chain of horror preceding it. The change of mood was so unheralded, lightning-like, and complete. I could scarcely believe that a single day could so alter the psychological perspective of one who had written that final frenzied bulletin of Wednesday no matter the relieving disclosure that day may have brought. At certain moments, a sense of conflicting unrealities made me wonder whether this whole distantly reported drama of fantastic forces was not a kind of halfway illusionary dream created largely within my own mind. Then I thought of the phonograph record and gave way to still greater bewilderment. The letter seemed so unlike anything which could have been expected. As I analyzed my impression, I saw that it consisted of two distinct phases. First, granting that Akeley had been sane before and was still sane. It indicated a change in the situation itself, so swift and unthinkable. And secondly, the change in Akeley's own manner, attitude, and language was so vastly beyond the normal or the predictable. The man's whole personality seemed to have undergone an insidious mutation, a mutation so deep that one could scarcely reconcile his two aspects 
with the supposition that both represented equal sanity. Word choice, spelling, all were subtly different. And with my academic sensitiveness to prose style, I could trace two profound divergences in his commonest reactions and rhythm responses. Certainly, the emotional cataclysm or revelation which could have produced so radical an overturn must be an extreme indeed. Yet, another way, the letter seems quite characteristic of Akeley. The other old passion for infinity, the same old scholarly inquisitiveness, I could at not a moment, or more than a moment, credit the idea of spuriousness or malign supposition. Did not the invitation, the willingness to have me test the truth of the letter in person prove its genuineness? I did not retire Sunday night, but set up thinking about the shadows and marvels behind the letter I received, my mind aching from the quick succession of monstrous conceptions it had been forced to confront during the last four months, worked upon this startling new material in a cycle of doubt and acceptance, which repeated most of the steps experienced in facing the earlier wonders, until before dawn a burning interest and curiosity had begun replacing the original storm of perplexity and uneasiness. Mad or sane, metamorphosed or merely relieved, the chance were that Akeley had actually encountered some stupendous change of perspective in his hazardous research, some change at once diminishing his danger, real or fancied, and opening busy new vistas of cosmic and superhuman knowledge. My own zeal for the unknown flared up to meet his, and I felt myself touched by the contagion of the morbid barrier breaking to shake off the maddening and weary limitations of time and space and natural law, to be linked with the vast outside, to come close with the knighted and abysmal secrets of the infinite and the ultimate. Surely a thing was worth the risk of one own life soul and sanity, and Akeley had said there was no longer any peril. He had invited me to visit him instead of warning me away as before. I tingled at the thought of what he might now have to tell me. There was almost a paralyzing fascination in the thought of sitting in that lonely and lately beleaguered farmhouse with a man who had talked with actual emissaries from outer space, sitting there with the terrible record in the pile of letters in which Akeley had summarized his earlier conclusions. So late Sunday morning, I telegraphed Akeley that I would meet him at Battleboro the following Wednesday, September 12th, and if that date was convenient towards him, in only one respect did I depart from his suggestion, and that concerned the choice of a train. Frankly, I did not feel like arriving at that haunted Vermont region late at night. So instead of accepting the train he chose, I telephoned the station and devised another arrangement. By rising early and talking, and taking the 8.07 a.m. standard to Boston, so I could catch the 9.25 to Greenville, and arriving there at 12.22 noon. This connected exactly with a train reaching Brattleboro at 1.08 p.m. Much more comfortable than the hour of 10.01, 
for meeting Akeley, riding with him into that close pack, Secret Guarding Hills. I mentioned this choice in my telegram and was glad to learn in the reply, which came towards evening, that it had met with my prospective host's endorsement. His wire ran thus. Arrangement satisfactory. We'll meet at 108 train Wednesday. Don't forget record and letters and prints. Keep destination quiet. Expect great revelations. Akeley. Receipt of this message in direct response to the one sent to Akeley and necessarily delivered to his house from Townshend Station, either by official messenger or by the restored telephone service, removed any lingering subconscious doubts. I must have had about the authorship of the perplexing letter. My relief was marked. Indeed, it was greater than I could account for at the time, since all of the doubt had been deeply buried. But I slept sound and long that night, and was eagerly busy with preparations during the ensuing two days. Chapter 6. On Wednesday, I started, as agreed, taking with me a valise full of simple necessities and scientific data, including the hideous phonograph record, the Kodak prints, and the entire files of Akeley's correspondence. As requested, I had told no one where I was going, for I could see the matter demanded utmost privacy, even allowing for its most favorable turns. The thought of actual menial contact with alien outside entities was stupefying enough to my trained and somewhat prepared mind, and this being so, what might one think of its effect on the vast masses of the uninformed layman? I do not know whether dread or adventurous expectancy was utmost to me. As I changed trains in Boston and began the long westward run out of familiar regions to those I knew less thoroughly Waltman, Concord, Ayer, Finchburg, Gardner, and Athol, my train reached Greenfield seven minutes late, but northbound connecting express had been held. Transferring in haste, I felt a curious breathlessness as the cars rumbled on through the earthly afternoon sunlight into territories I always read of, but never before visited. I knew I was entering altogether older-fashioned and more primitive New England than the mechanized, urbanized, coastal, and southern areas of all my life had been spent, an unspoiled, ancestral New England, without the foreigners and factory smoke billboard and concrete road of sections which modernity had touched there would be the odd survivals of which modernity had touched there would be odd survivals of the continued native life whose deeps root made it one authentic outgrowth of landscape the continuous native life which kept alive strange ancient memories and fertilizes the soil for shadowy marvelous and seldom mentioned beliefs. Now and then, I saw the blue Connecticut River gleaming in the sun, and after leaving Northfield, we crossed it. Ahead loomed green and cryptical hills, 
and when the conductor came around, I learned that I was at last in Vermont. He told me to set my watch an hour back, since the Northern Hill country has no dealing with newfangled daylight saving schemes. As I did, it seemed to me I was likewise turning the calendar back a century. The train kept close to the river, and across in New Hampshire, I could see the approaching slope of the deep Quantasicet, about which singular old legends cluster. Then streets appear. On my left, a green island shooed in the stream. Only on my right, people rose and filled in the doors. I followed them. The car stopped. I aligned beneath the long train shed of the Battleboro station. Looking over the line of waiting motors, I hesitated a moment to see one which might turn out to be Akeley Ford, but my identity was defined before I could take the initiative, and yet it was clearly not Akeley himself who advanced to meet me with an outstretched hand and a mellowly phrased query as to whether I was indeed Mr. Albert N. Wilmarth of Arkham. This man bore no resemblance to the bearded, grizzled Akeley of the snapshot, but was a younger and more urban person, fashionably dressed, wearing only a small, dark mustache. His cultivated voice held an odd and almost disturbing hint of vague familiarity, though I could not definitely place it in my memory. As I surveyed him, I heard him explaining that he was a friend of my prospective host who had come down from Townshed in his steed. Akeley, he declared, had suffered a sudden attack of some asthmatic troubles and did not feel equal to make a trip in the outdoor air. It was not serious, however, but there was be no change in the plans regarding my visit. I could not make out just how much this Mr. Noise, as he announced himself, knew of Akeley's researches and discoveries, though it seemed to me that his casual manner stamped him a comparative outsider. Remembering what a hermit Akeley had been, I was a trifle surprised at the ready availability at such a friend, but did not let my puzzlement deter me from entering the motor to which he gestured me. It was not the small ancient car I expected from Akeley's depictions, but a large, immaculate specimen of twice-pattern, apparently noise-own, and bearing Massachusetts license plate with the amusing sacred codfish device of that year. My guide, I concluded, must be a summer transient in the townshed area. Noise climbed into the car beside me and started at once. I was glad he did not overflow with conversation, for some particular atmospheric intensity made me feel disinclined to talk. The town seemed very attractive in the afternoon sunlight as we swept up in an incline and turned to the right in the main street. It drows like older New England cities, which one remembers from boyhood, and something in the co-location of the roofs and steeples and, st and chimneys and brick walls formed contours touching deep feel strings of ancestral emotion. I could tell that 
I was at the gateway of a region half-bewitched through the piling of unbroken time accumulation, a region where old strange things have had a chance to grow and linger because they had never been stirred up. We passed out of Brattleboro. My sense of constraint and foreboding increased, for a vague quality in the hill-crowned countryside, with its towering, threatening, close-pressed green and granite slopes, hinted at obscure secrets and immemorial survivals, which might or might not be hostile to mankind. For a time, our course followed a broad, shallow river which flowed down from unknown hills in the north. I shivered when my companion told me that it was West River. It was in this stream, I recalled from newspaper items, that one of the morbid crab-like beings had been seen floating after the floods. Gradually, the country around it grew wilder and more deserted. Archaic covered bridges lingered fearsomely out of the past in pockets of the hills. An half-abandoned railway track paralleling the river seemed to exhale a nebulously visible air of desolation. There were awesome sweeps of the vivid valley where cliffs rose, New England's virgin granite showing gray and austere through the verdure that scaled the crest. There were gorges where untamed streams leaped, bearing down towards the river. The unimagined secrets of a thousand pathless peaks branching away, and from there, branching away now, and then were narrow, half-concealed roads that bore their way through solid, luxuriant masses of forests among those among whose primal trees whole armies of elemental spirits might lurk. As I saw these, I thought of how Akeley had been molested by unseen agents on his drive along this very route and did not wonder that such things could be quaint slightly village of Newfane, reached in less than half an hour was our last link of that world which man could definitely call his own by virtue of conquest and complete occupancy after that we cast off all allegiance to immediate tangible and time-touched things and entered a fantastic world of hushed unreality which the narrow ribbon-like road rose and fell and curved with an almost sentient and purpose carapace amidst the tenantless green peaks and half-deserted valleys except for the sound of the motor and the faint stirring of the few lonely farms we passed at infrequent at infrequent intervals the only thing that reached my ears was the gurgling insidious trickle of strange waters from numberless hidden fountains in the shadowy woods. The nearness and intimacy of the dwarfed domed hills now became invariably breathtaking. Their steepness and abruptness were even greater than I imagined from hearsay, and suggested none in common with the prosaic objective world we knew. The dense unvisited woods on those inaccessible slopes seemed to harbor alien and incredible things. 
and I felt that the very outlines of the hills themselves held some strange and aeon-forgotten meaning, as if they were vast hieroglyphs left by the rumored titan races who glories only live in rare deep dreams. All the legend of the past in the stupefying impotences of Henry Akeley's letters and exhibit welled up in my memory to heighten the atmosphere of tension and growing menace. The purpose of my visit and the frightful abnormalities it postulated struck me at once all a chill sensation that nearly overbalanced my ardour for strange dwellings. My guide must have noticed my disturbed attitude, for the road grew more wilder and more irregular, and our motion slower and more jolting. His occasional pleasant comment expanded into a steadier flow of discourse. He spoke of the beauty and weirdness of the country, and revealed some acquaintances with folklore and studies of my prospective host. From his polite questions, it was obvious he knew I had come for a scientific purpose, in, and that I was bringing data of some importance, but he gave no signs of appreciating the depths and wakefulness of the knowledge which Akeley had finally reached. His manner, so cheerful, normal, and urbane, that his remarks ought to have calmed and reassured me. But oddly enough, I felt only the more disturbed as we bumped and veered onward onto the unknown wilderness of hills and woods. At times it seemed as if he was bumping me to see what I knew of the monstrous secrets of the place. And with every fresh utterance, that vague, teasing, baffling familiarity in his voice increased. It was not an ordinary or healthy familiarity despite the thorough, wholesome, and cultivated nature of the voice. I somehow linked it with forgotten nightmares and felt that I might go mad if I recognized it. If any good excuse existed, I think I would have turned back from my visit. As it was, I could not well do, and it occurred to me that a cool scientific conversation with Akeley himself after my arrival would help greatly pull me together. Besides, there was a strangely calming element to the cosmic beauty in the hypnotic landscape which we climbed and plunged fantastically. Time has lost itself in the labyrinths now behind and around us stretched only the flowering waves of fairy and the recaptured loveliness of vanished centuries. The hoary groves, the untainted pastures, edged with gay, upturnal blossom, and at vast intervals, the small brown farmsteads nestling amongst huge trees beneath vertical precipices of fragrant briar and meadow grasses. Even the sunlight assumed a supernatural glamour, as if some special atmosphere or exhalation mantled the whole region. I had felt like nothing before it, save in the magic vistas that sometimes form the backgrounds of Italian primitive Sondona and in Leonardo conceived such expanses, but only in the distances and through the vaultings of Renaissance arcades. We were now burrowing boldly 
through the midst of the picture, and I seemed to follow its necromancy, a thing I had intimately known or inherited, for which I had always been vainly searching. Suddenly, after rounding an obtuse angle on the top of a sharp accent, the car came to a standstill. On my left, across a well-kept lawn, which stretched to the road, flaunted a border of whitewashed stone, rose a white two-and-a-half-story house of unusual size and elegance for the region with a congeries of congeries, or arcadeling barn, sheds, windmills behind and to the right. I recognized it at once from the snapshot, and I risked from the snapshot I received, I was not surprised to see the name of Henry Akeley on the galvanized iron mailbox near the road. For some disturbances, back of the house, a level stench of marshy and sparsely wooded area extended, beyond which soared a steep, thickly forested hillside, ending in a jagged leafy crest. This ladder, I knew, was the summit of Dark Mountain, halfway up, which we must have climbed already. A light from the car, and taking my valise, Noise asked me to wait while he went inside and notified Akeley of my advent. He himself, he added, had an important business elsewhere. It would not stop for more than a moment. As he briskly walked up the path to the house, I climbed out of the car myself, wishing to stretch my legs a little before settling down in a sedentary conversation. My feeling of nervousness and tension had risen to a maximum again, now that I was on the actual scene of the morbid, beleaguering, described so hauntedly in Akeley's letters. I honestly dreaded the coming discussions, which were to link me with such alien and forbidden world. Close contact with the utterly bizarre is more often terrifying than inspiring, but it did not cheer me to think that this very bit of dusty road was the place whose monstrous tracks and bedded green ichor could be found after moonless night of fear and death. Idly, I noticed that none of Akeley's dogs seemed to be about. Had he sold all of them as soon as the elder ones made peace with them? Might as I try, I could not have the same confidence in the depth of sincerity of that piece, which appeared in Akeley's final and queerly different letter. After all, he was a man of much simplicity, with little worldly experience. Was there not, perhaps, some deep and sinister undercurrent beneath the surface of the new alliance? Led by my thoughts, my eyes turned downward to the powdery road surface which had held such hideous testimonies. The last few days had been dry, and the tracks of all sorts cluttered the rutted irregular highway, despite the infrequent nature of the district. With a vague curiosity, I had begun to trace the outline of some of the heterogeneous impressions, trying to curb the flights of macabre fancy, which the place and its memory suggested. There was something menacing and uncomfortable in the funeral stillness, in the muffled subtle tracks of distant brooks, and the crowding green peaks and the black wooded precipices that choked the narrow horizon. And then an image shot to my consciousness, which made those vague memories and flights of fancy 
seemed mild and insignificant indeed. I had said that I was scanning the malice, miscellaneous prints in the road with some kind of idle curiosity. But then all at once the curiosity was shockingly snuffed out by a sudden and paralyzing gust of active terror. For though the dust tracks were in general confused and overlapping, and unlikely to arrest any casual glance, my restless vision had caught certain details near the spot of the path to the house adjoined the highway, and recognized beyond a doubt or hopes the frightful significance of those details. It was not for nothing at last that I poured for hours over the Kodak views of the outer one claw prints which Jakely had sent. Too well I knew the marks of those loathsome nippers in the hint of ambiguous direction which stamped the horrors as no creature of this planet. No chance had left me for merciful mistake. Here indeed, in objective form before my own eyes, surely made not merely hours ago, were at least three marks which stood out blasphemously among this surprising plethora of blurred footprints leading to and from the Akeley farmhouse. There were the hellish tracks of the living fungi from Yagoth. I pulled myself together in time to stifle a scream. After all, what more was there than I might expect it, assuming that I really believed Akeley's letters. He had spoken of making peace with the thing. Why then, was it strange that some of them had visited his house? But the terror was stronger than the reassurance. Could any man be expected to look unmoved for the first time upon the cloth marks of animate beings from outer depth of space? Just then, I saw noise emerge from the door and approach with a brisk step. I must, I reflected, keep command of myself, for the chance this genial friend knew nothing of Akeley's profoundest and most stupendous probing into the forbidden. Akeley, noise, hastened to inform me, was glad and ready to see me. Although his sudden attack of asthma would prevent him from being a very competent host for a day or two, these spells hit him hard when they came, and they were almost accompanied by debilitating fever and general weakness. He was never good for much while they lasted, and had talked in a whisper, and was very clumsy and feeble in getting about. His feet and ankles swelled too, so that he had to bandage them like a gouty old beef eater. Today, he was in rather a bad shape, so that I might have to attend very largely to my own needs, but he was none the less eager for conversation. I would find him in the study at the left of the front hall, the room where the blinds were shut. He had to keep sunlight out when he was ill, for his eyes were very sensitive. As noise bade me adieu and rode off northward in his car, I began to walk slowly towards the house. The door had been left ajar for me, but before approaching and entering, I cast a searching glance around the whole place, trying to decide what had struck me so intangibly queer about it. The barns and shed looked trimly prosaic enough, and I noticed Akeley's battered board in his capricious, unguarded shelter. Then the secret of the queerness reached me. It was the total silence. Ordinarily, a farm is at least moderately murmurous from the various kinds of livestock 
but here all signs of life were missing. What of the hens and the hog? The crows, which Akeley had said he possessed several, might conceivably be out the pasture, and the dog might possibly be been sold, but the absence of any cackling or grunting was singularly particular. I did not pause long on the path, but resolutely entered the open house door and closed it behind me. It had a cost. It had cost me a distinct psychological effort to do so, and now that I was shut inside, I had a momentary longing for a precipitate retreat. Not for the place was in the most sinister in visual suggestion. On the contrary, I thought the graceful late colonial hallway was very tasteful and wholesome, and admired the evident breeding of the man who had furnished it. What made me wish to flee was something very attuned and indefinable. Perhaps it was a certain odd odor, which I thought I noticed. Well, though I well knew how common musty odors were even in the best of ancient farmhouses. Chapter 4 The Unknown Things, Akeley wrote, in a script grown pitifully tremulous, had begun to close in on him with a wholly new degree of determination. The nocturnal barkings of dogs whenever the moon was dim or absent was hideous now, and there had been attempts to molest him on the lonely roads he had traversed by the day. He had found a tree trunk had landed in his path at a point where the highway ran through a deep patch of woods, while the savage barking of the two great dogs he had with him told all too well the things which must have been lurking near. What would have happened if the dogs had not been there? He did not dare guess, but he never went out without at least two of his faithful and powerful pack. The other road experiences had occurred on August 5th and 6th, a shot grazing his cat on one occasion, and the barking of the dogs telling of unholy woodland presence of the other. On August 15th, I received a frantic letter which disturbed me greatly, and which made me wish Akeley could put aside his lonely reticence and call in the aid of the law. There had been frightful happenings on the night of the 12th through 13th. Bullets flying outside of the farmhouse, and three of the twelve great dogs had been found shot dead in the morning. There were myriads of claw prints in the road with human prints of Walter Brown among them. Akeley had started to telephone to Rattleboro for more dogs, but the wire had gone dead before he had a chance to say much. Later, he came to Battleboro in his car and learned that Lineman had found the main telephone cable nearly cut to a point where it ran through the deserted hills north of Newfane. But he was about to start with four fine new dogs and several cases of ammunition for his big game repeating rifle. The letter is written at the post office in Brattleboro and came through to me without delay. My attitude towards the matter was by this time quickly slipping from a scientific to an alarmed personal one. I was afraid for Akeley in his remote, lonely farmhouse, half afraid for myself because of my now definite connection 
with strange hill problems. The things were reaching out. So would it suck me in and engulf me? In replying to his letter, I urged him to seek help and hinted I might take action myself if he did not. I spoke of visiting Vermont in person in spite of his wishes and of helping him explain the situation to the proper authorities. In return, however, I received only a telegram from, from Bellows Fall, which read thus. Appreciate your position, but can do nothing. Take no action yourself, for it could only harm both. Wait for explanation. Henry Akeley. But the affair was steadily deepening. I received a shaky note from Akeley, with the astonishing news that he had not only never sent the wire, but he never received the letter from me. To which it was an obvious reply. Hasty inquiries by him at Bellow Falls had brought out that message was deposited by a strange sandy-haired man with a curiously thick droning voice. Though more than this, he did not learn. The clerk shooed him the original text as sprawled in pencil by the sender, but the handwriting was wholly unfamiliar. It was unnoticeable, but the signature was misspelled A-K-E-L-Y without the second E. Certainly, conjectures were inevitable, but amidst the obvious crisis, he did not stop to elaborate upon them. He spoke of the death of more dogs and the purchase of still others, and of exchange of gunfire, which had become a settled feature each moonless night. Brown's prints, and the prints of at least one or two more shod human figures, were now found regularly among the claw prints in the road, in the back of the farmhouse. It was, Akeley admitted, a pretty bad business, and before long he would probably have to go to live with his California son, whether or not he could sell the old place. But it was not easy to leave the only spot one could only think of home. He must try to hang on a little longer. Perhaps he could scare off the intruders, especially if he openly gave up all further attempts to penetrate their secrets. Writing Akeley once, I reviewed my offers of aid and spoke again of visiting him and helping him convince the authorities of his dire peril. In his reply, he seemed less set against the plan as his past attitude would have led me to predict. But he said he would like to hold off a little while longer, long enough to get his things in order and reconcile himself with the idea of leaving an almost morbidly cherished place. People looked sconce at his studies and speculations, and it would be better to get quietly off without setting the countryside in a turmoil in creating widespread doubts of his own sanity. He had enough, he admitted, but he wanted to make a dignified exit if he could. The letter reached me on the 28th of August, and I prepared and mailed encouraging reply as I could. Apparently, the encouragement had effect for Wakely with fewer terrors to report when he acknowledged my notes. He was not very optimistic, though and expressed the belief that it was only the full moon season which was holding the creatures off. He hoped that it had not been many densely clouded nights 
and talked vaguely of boarding at Batterboro when the moon waned. Again, I wrote him encouragingly, but on September 5th, there came a fresh communications, which had obviously crossed my letter in the mails, and to this I could not give any such hopeful response. In view of the importance, I believed I had better give him a give it in full, as best I could do from memory, of the shaky script. It ran substantially as followed. Monday. Dear Wilmarth, a rather discouraging P.S. to my last. Last night was thickly cloudy, though no rain, and not a bit of moonlight got through. Things were pretty bad, and I think the end is getting near, in spite of all we have hoped. After midnight, something landed on the roof of the house, and the dogs all rushed up to see what it was. I could hear them snapping and tearing around, and then one managed to get on the roof by jumping from the low L. There was a terrible fight up there, and I heard frightful buzzing, which I'll never forget. And then there was a shocking smell. About the same time, bullets came through the window and nearly grazed me. I think the main line of the hill creatures had got close to the house when the dogs divided because of the roof business. What was up there, I don't know yet. But I'm afraid the creatures are learning to steer better with their space wings. I put out the light and used the windows for loopholes, and raked all along the house with rifle fire aimed just high enough not to hit the dogs. That seemed to end the business, but the morning I found great pools of blood in the yard, beside pools of green sticky stuff that had the worst odor I have ever smelled. I climbed up on the roof and found more of the sticky stuff there. Five of the dogs were killed. I'm afraid I hit one myself by aiming too low, for he was shot in the back. Now I am setting the pains the shots broke, and am going to Battleboro for more dogs. Guess the men at the kennels think I'm crazy. We'll drop another note later. Suppose I'll be ready for moving in a week or two, though it nearly kills me to think of it. Hastily, Akeley. But this was not the only letter from Akeley. The cross mine. On the next morning, September 6th, still another came. This time, a frantic scrawl. Unnerved me and put me at a loss what to say or do next. Again, I cannot do better than quote the text as faithfully as memory would let me. Tuesday. Clouds didn't break, so no moon again. I'm going to the wane anyhow. I'd have the house wired for electricity and put in a searchlight if I didn't know they'd cut the cables as fast as they could be mended. I think I'm going crazy. It may be that all I've ever written to you is a dream or madness. It was bad enough before, but this time it was too much. They talked to me last night talked in that cursed buzzing voice and told me things that I dare not repeat to you. I heard them plainly over the barking of the dogs, and once when they were drowned out, a human voice helped them. Keep out of this, Wilmarth. It was worse than either you or I ever suspected. They don't mean to let me get to California now. They want to take me off alive, or what theoretically and mentally amounts to alive. Not only to Yagoth, but beyond that way outside the galaxy and possibly beyond the last curved rim of space. I told them I wouldn't go where they wish, or in the terrible way they proposed to take me, but I'm afraid it will be no use. My place is so far out that they may come by day as well as by night before long. 
six more dogs killed, and I felt presences all along the wooded parts of the road when I drove the Battleboro today. It was a mistake for me to try and send you that phonograph record in Blackstone. Better smash the record before it's too late. We'll drop you another line tomorrow if I'm still here. Wish I could arrange to get my books and things to Battleboro and board there. I would run off without anything if I could, but something inside my mind holds me back. I can slip out to Battleboro where I ought to be safe, but I feel just as much a prisoner there as at the house. And it seems to know that I couldn't get much farther, even if I dropped everything and tried. It is horrible. Don't get mixed up in this. Yours, Akeley. I did not sleep at all the night after receiving the terrible thing, and was utterly baffled as Akeley remaining degree of sanity. The substance of the note was wholly insane, yet the manner of expression in his view of all that has gone before had a grimly potent quality of convincingness. Wednesday, W. Your letter came, but it's no use to discuss anything more. I am fully resigned. Wonder that I have even enough willpower left to fight them off can't escape even if I were willing to give up everything and run. They'll get me. Had a letter from them yesterday. RFD man brought it while I was at Battleboro. Typed and postmarked Bellows Falls. Tells what they want to do with me. I can't repeat it. Look out for yourself too. Smash that record. Cloudy nights keep up and moon waning all the time. Wish I dared to get help. It might brace up my willpower. But everyone who would dare come at all would call me crazy unless there happened to be some proof. Couldn't ask people to come for no reason at all. I'm all out of touch with everybody and have been for years. But I haven't told you the worst, Wilmarth. Brace up to read this. For it will give you a shock. I'm telling you the truth, though. It is this. I have seen and touched one of the things, or part of one of the things. God, man, but it was awful. He was dead, of course. One of the dogs had it, and I found it near the kennel this morning. I tried to save it in the woodshed to convince people of the whole thing, but it had all evaporated in a few hours. Nothing left. You know, all those things in the rivers were only seen the first morning after the flood. And here's the worst. I tried to photograph it for you, but when I developed the film, there wasn't anything visible except the woodshed. What can the thing have been made of? I saw it and felt it, and they all leave footprints, and it was surely made of matter. But what kind of matter? The shape can't be described. It was a great crab with lots of pyramided, fleshy rings or knots of thick, ropey stuff covered with feelers where the man's head would be. That green, sticky stuff is its blood, or juice, and there are more of them due on Earth any minute. Walter Brown is missing. Hasn't been seen loafing around any of his usual corners in the villages hereabouts. I must have got him with one of my shots, though the creatures always seem to try to take their dead and wounded away. Got into town this afternoon without any trouble, but I'm afraid they're beginning to hold off because they're sure of me. Am writing this in Battleboro, P.O. This may be goodbye. If it is, write my son George good enough, Akeley. 176 Pleasant Street, San Diego, California. But don't come up here. Write the boy if you don't hear from me in a week, and watch the papers for news. I'm going to play my last two cards now. If I have the willpower left, 
first to try poison gas on the things. I've got the right chemicals and have fixed masks for myself and the dogs. And then, if that doesn't work, tell the sheriff. They can lock me in a madhouse if they want to. It'll be better than what the other creatures would do. Perhaps I can get them to pay attention to the prints around the house. They are faint, but I can find them every morning. Suppose, though, police would say I fake them somehow. Or they must all think I'm a queer character. Must try to have a state policeman spend a night here and see for himself. Though it would be just like the creatures learn about it and hold off the night. They cut my wires whenever I try to telephone in the night. The linemen think it is very queer and may testify for me if they don't go and imagine I cut them myself. I haven't tried to keep them repaired for over a week now. I could get some of the ignorant people to testify for me about the reality of the horrors, but everybody laughs at what they say. And anyways, they have shunned my place for so long that they don't know any of the new events. You couldn't get one of those run-down farmers to come within a mile of my house for the love or money. The mail carrier hears what they say and jokes me about it. God, if only I dared tell them how real it is. I think I'll try and get him to notice the prince, but he comes in the afternoon, and they're usually about gone by that time. If I keep one by setting it in a box or pan over it, he'd think surely it was fake or a joke. Wish I hadn't gotten to be such a hermit. Folks don't drop around as they used to. I never dared shoo the black stone or the Kodak pictures or play that record to anybody but the ignorant people. The others would say I faked the whole business and do nothing but laugh. But I may yet try chewing the pictures. They give those claw prints clearly, even if the things that made them can't be photographed. What a shame nobody else saw that thing this morning before it went to nothing. But I don't know as I care. After what I've been through, a madhouse is a good place to stay as any. The doctors can help me make up my mind as to get away from this house. And that is all that will save me. Write my son George if you don't hear soon. Goodbye. Smash that record. And don't mix up in this. Yours, Akeley. The letter frankly purged me into the blackest of terror. I did not know what to say in answer, but scratched off some incoherent words of advice and encouragement and sent them by registered mail. I recall urging Akeley to move to Batterboro at once and place himself under protection of the authorities, adding that I could come to that town with the phonograph record and help convince the courts of insanity. It was time to, I think, I wrote, to alarm the people generally against this thing in their mists. It will be observed at this moment. All of the stress of my own belief in all Akeley had told and claimed was virtually complete. Though I did not think his failure to get a picture of the dead monster was not due to any freak of nature, but to some excited slip of his own. Chapter 5 Then, apparently crossing my incoherent notes and reaching me Sunday afternoon, September 8th, came the curiously different and calming letter neatly typed on a new machine. That strange letter of reassurance and invitation, which must have marked so prodigiously a transition in the whole nightmare drama of the Lonely Hills. Again, I will quote from memory seeking for special reasons to preserve as much of the flavor of the style as I can. It was postmarked 
Bellow Falls, and the signature as well. The body of the letter was typed, as frequent with beginners in typing. The text, though, was marvelously accurate for the Tyro's work, and I concluded that Akeley must have used a machine at some previous period, perhaps in college. To say that the letter relieved me would be only fair, yet beneath my relief laid a stratum of uneasiness. If Akeley had been sane in his terror, he was now sane in his deliverance, and it was a sort of improved rapport mentioned. What was it? The entire thing implied such a diametrical reversal of Akeley's previous attitude. But here was the substance of the text, carefully transcribed from a memory in which I take some pride. My dear Wilmerth, it gives me great pleasure to be able to set you at rest regarding all the silly things I have been writing to you. I say silly, although by that I mean my frightened attitude rather than my descriptions of certain phenomena. Those phenomena are real and important enough. My mistake had been in establishing an anomalous attitude toward them. I think I mentioned that my strange visitors were beginning to communicate with me, and to attempt such communication. Last night, this exchange of speech became actual. In response to certain signals, I admitted to the house, a messenger from those outside, a fellow human, let me hasten to say. He told me much that neither you nor I had begun to guess, and shewed clearly how totally we had misjudged and misinterpreted the purpose of the Outer Ones in maintaining their secret colony on this planet. It seems that the evil legends about what they have offered to men, and what they wish in connection with the Earth, are wholly the result of an ignorant misconception of allegorical speech. Speech, of course, molded by cultural backgrounds and thought habits vastly different from anything we dream of. My own conjectures, I freely own, shot as widely past the mark as any of the guesses of illiterate farmers and natives. What I had thought morbid and shameful and ignominious was in reality awesome and mind-expanding and even glorious my previous estimate being merely the phase of man's eternal tendency to hate and fear and shrink from the utterly different. Now I regret the harm I have inflicted upon these alien and incredible beings in the course of our nightly skirmishes. If only I had consented to talk peacefully and reasonably with them in the first place. But they bear me no grudge, their emotions being organized very differently from ours. It is their misfortune to have had their human agents in Vermont some very inferior specimens. The late Walter Brown, for example, he prejudiced me vastly against them. Actually, they have never knowingly harmed men, but have often been cruelly wronged and spied upon by our species. There is a whole secret cult of evil men, a man of your mystical erudition, will understand me when I link them with Hastur and the Yellow Sign devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. It is against these aggressors, not against normal humanity, that the drastic precautions of the Outer Ones are directed. Incidentally, I learned that many of our lost letters were stolen not by the Outer Ones, but by the emissaries of this malign cult. All the Outer Ones' wish of man is peace and non-molestation, and an increasing intellectual rapport. 
this latter is absolutely necessary now that our inventions and devices are expanding our knowledge and motions, and making it more and more impossible for the Outer Ones' necessary outposts to exist secretly on this planet. The alien beings desire to know mankind more fully, and to have a few of mankind's philosophic and scientific leaders know more about them. With such an exchange of knowledge, all perils will pass, and a satisfactory modus vivendi be established. The very idea of any attempt to enslave or degrade mankind is ridiculous. As a beginning of this improved rapport, the Outer Ones have naturally chosen me, whose knowledge of them is already so considerable, as their primary interpreter on Earth. Much has told me last night, facts of the most stupendous and vista-opening nature, and more will be subsequently communicated to me both orally and in writing. I shall not be called upon to make any trip outside just yet, though I shall probably wish to do that later on, employing special means and transcending everything which we have hitherto been accustomed to regard as human experience. My house will be besieged no longer. Everything has reverted to normal, and the dogs will have no further occupation. In place of terror, I have given a rich boon of knowledge and intellectual adventure which few other mortals have ever shared. The outer beings are perhaps the most marvelous organic things in or beyond all space and time. Members of a cosmos-wide space with all other life forms are merely degenerate variants. They are more vegetable than human, a somewhat fungoid structure, though the presence of a chlorophyll-like substance and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true chromophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space, with electrons having wholly different vibration rate. This is why the beings cannot be photographed on ordinary camera films and plates of our known universe, even though our eyes can see them. With proper knowledge, however, any good chemist can make a photographic emulsion which could record their images. The genus is unique in its ability to traverse the heatless and airless interstellar void in full corporeal form and some of its variants cannot do this without mechanical aid or curious surgical transpositions. Only a few species have the either-resisting wings characteristic of the Vermont variety. Those inhabiting certain remote peaks in the Old World were brought in other ways. Their external resemblance to animal life and to the sort of structure we understand as material is a matter of parallel evolution rather than of close kinship. The brain capacity exceeds that of any other surviving life form, although the winged types of our hill country are by no means the most highly developed. Telepathy is their usual means of discourse, though they have rudimentary vocal organs, which, after a slight operation for a surgery is an incredible expert in everyday thing among them, can roughly duplicate the stretch of certain types of organisms as still use speech. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune and the ninth in distance from the sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as Ygoth in certain ancient and forbidden writings and it will soon be 
the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yagoth when the other Outer Ones wish them to do so. But Yagoth, of course, is only the stepping stone. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule, which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity, is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. And as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to not more than 50 other men since the human race has existed. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune and the ninth in distance from the sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as Yagoth in certain ancient and forbidden writings. And it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yagoth when the other Outer Ones wish them to do so. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule, which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity, is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. And as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to mo not more than 50 other men since the human race has existed. The train service to Battleboro is not bad. You can get a timetable in Boston, take the B&M to Greenfield, then change for a brief remainder of the way. I suggest you're taking the convenient 4.10 p.m. standard from Boston. This gets to Greenfield at 7.35, and at 9.19, a train leaves there which reaches Battleboro at 10.01. That is weekdays. Let me know the date, and I'll have my car on hand at the station. Pardon this typed letter, but my handwriting has grown shaky as of late, as you know, and I don't feel equal to long stretches of script. I got this new corona in Battleboro yesterday, and it seems to work very well. Awaiting word and hoping to see you shortly with the photograph record in all my letters and the Kodak prints. I am yours in anticipation, Henry W. Akeley, to Albert N. Wilmarth, Esquire, Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts. The complexity of my emotions upon reading, rereading, and pondering over this strange and unlooked for letter it's past adequate description. I have said that I was at once relieved and made uneasy, but this expresses only crudely the overtone of diverse and largely subconscious feelings which, which comprise both the relief and the uneasiness. To begin with, Thing was so antipodally at variance with the whole chain of horror preceding it. The change of mood was so unheralded, lightning-like, and complete. I could scarcely believe that a single day could so alter 
the psychological perspective of one who had written that final frenzy bulletin of Wednesday, no matter the relieving disclosure that day may have brought. At certain moments, a sense of conflicting unrealities made me wonder whether this whole distantly reported drama of fantastic forces was not a kind of halfway illusionary dream created largely within my own mind. Then I thought of the phonograph record and gave way to still greater bewilderment. The letter seemed so unlike anything which could have been expected. As I analyzed my impression, I saw that it consisted of two distinct phases. First, granting that Akeley had been sane before and was still sane. It indicated a change in the situation itself, so swift and unthinkable. And secondly, the change in Akeley's own manner, attitude, and language was so vastly beyond the normal or the predictable. The man's whole personality seemed to have undergone an insidious mutation, a mutation so deep that one could scarcely reconcile his two aspects with the supposition that both represented equal sanity. Word choice, spelling, all were subtly different, and with my academic sensitiveness to pro style, I could trace two profound divergences in his commonest reactions and rhythm responses. Certainly, the emotional cataclysm or revelation which could have produced so radical an overturn must be an extreme indeed. Yet, another way, the letter seems quite characteristics of Ikwe. The other old passion for infinity, the same old scholarly inquisitiveness. I could at not a moment, or more than a moment, credit the idea of spuriousness or malign supposition. Did not the invitation, the willingness to have me test the truth of the letter in person prove its genuineness? I did not retire Sunday night, but set up thinking about the shadows and marvels behind the letter I received, my mind aching from the quick succession of monstrous conceptions it had been forced to confront during the last four months, worked upon this startling new material in the cycle of doubt and acceptance, which repeated most of the steps experienced in facing the earlier wonders, until before dawn a burning interest and curiosity had begun replacing the original storm of perplexity and uneasiness. Mad or sane, metamorphosed or merely relieved, the chance were that Akeley had actually encountered some stupendous change of perspective in his hazardous research, some change at once diminishing his danger, real or fancied, in opening busy new vistas of cosmic and superhuman knowledge. My own zeal for the unknown flared up to meet his, and I felt myself touched by the contagion of the morbid barrier breaking to shake off the maddening and weary limitations of time and space and natural law to be linked with the vast outside to come close with the knighted and abysmal secrets of the infinite and the ultimate surely a thing was worth the risk of one own life soul and sanity and Akeley had that there was no longer any peril. He had invited me to visit him instead of warning me away as before. I tingled at the thought of what he might now have 
to tell me. There's almost a paralyzing fascination in the thought of sitting in that lonely and lately beleaguered farmhouse with a man who had talked with actual emissaries from outer space, sitting there with the terrible record in the pile of letters in which Akeley had summarized his earlier conclusions. So late Sunday morning, I telegraphed Akeley that I would meet him at Battleboro the following Wednesday, September 12th, and if that date was convenient towards him, in only one respect did I depart from his suggestion, and that concerned the choice of a train. Frankly, I did not feel like arriving at that haunted Vermont region late at night, so instead of accepting the train he chose, I telephoned the station and devised another arrangement by rising early and talking and taking the 8.07 a.m. standard to Boston so I could catch the 9.25 to Greenville and arriving there at 12.22 noon. This connected exactly with a train reaching Brattleboro at 1.08 p.m., much more comfortable than the hour of 10.01 for meeting Akeley, riding with him into that close pack secret guarding hills. I mentioned this choice in my telegram and was glad to learn in the reply, which came towards evening, that it had met with my prospective host's endorsement. His wire ran thus. Arrangement satisfactory. We'll meet at 108 train Wednesday. Don't forget record and letters and prints. Keep destination quiet. Expect great revelations. Akeley. Receipt of this message in direct response to the one sent to Akeley, and necessarily delivered to his house from Townshend Station, either by official messenger or by the restored telephone service, removed any lingering subconscious doubts. I must have had about the authorship of the perplexing letter. My relief was marked, indeed. It was greater than I could account for at the time, since all of the doubts had been deeply buried. But I slept sound and long that night, and was eagerly busy with preparations during the ensuing two days. Chapter 6 On Wednesday, I started, as agreed, taking with me a valise full of simple necessities and scientific data, including the hideous phonograph record, the Kodak prints, and the entire files of Akeley's correspondence. As requested, I had told no one where I was going, for I could see the matter demanded utmost privacy, even allowing for its most favorable turns. The thought of actual menial contact with alien outside entities was stupefying enough to my trained and somewhat prepared mind. And this being so, what might one think of its effect on the vast masses of the uninformed layman? I do not know whether dread or adventurous expectancy was utmost to me as I changed trains in Boston and began the long westward run out of familiar regions to those I knew less thoroughly. Waltman, Concord, Ayer, Benchburg, Gardner, and Athol. A train reached Greenfield seven minutes late, but northbound Connecting Express had been held. Transferring in haste, 
I felt a curious breathlessness as the cars rumbled on through the earthly afternoon sunlight into territories I always read of, but never before visited. I knew I was entering altogether older-fashioned and more primitive New England than the mechanized, urbanized, coastal, and southern areas of all my life had been spent, an unspoiled, ancestral New England, without the foreigners and factory smoke, billboard, and concrete road, of sections which modernity had touched. There would be the odd survivals of which modernity had touched. There would be odd survivals of the continued native life whose deeps root made it one authentic outgrowth of landscape, the continuous native life which kept alive strange ancient memories and fertilizes the soil for shadowy, marvelous, and seldom mentioned beliefs. Now and then, I saw the blue Connecticut River gleaming in the sun, and after leaving Northfield, we crossed it. Ahead loomed green and cryptical hills, and when the conductor came around, I learned that I was at last in Vermont. He told me to set my watch an hour back, since the Northern Hill country has no dealing with newfangled daylight saving schemes. As I did, it seemed to me I was likewise turning the calendar back a century. The train kept close to the river, and across in New Hampshire, I could see the approaching slope of the deep Pontasiquet, about which singular old legends cluster. Then streets appear. On my left, a green island chewed in the stream. Only on my right, people rose and filled in the doors. I followed them. The car stopped. I aligned beneath the long train shed of the Battleboro station. Looking over the line of waiting motors, I hesitated a moment to see one which might turn out to be Akeley Ford, but my identity was defined before I could take the initiative, and yet it was clearly not Akeley himself who advanced to meet me with an outstretched hand and a mellowly phrased query as to whether I was indeed Mr. Albert in Wilmarth of Arkham. This man bore no resemblance to the bearded, grizzled Akeley of the snapshot, but was a younger and more urban person, fashionably dressed, wearing only a small dark mustache. His cultivated voice held an odd and almost disturbing hint of vague familiarity, though I could not definitely place it in my memory. As I surveyed him, I heard him explaining that he was a friend of my prospective host who had come down from Townshed in his steed. Akeley, he declared, had suffered a sudden attack of some asthmatic troubles and did not feel equal to make a trip in the outdoor air. It was not serious, however, but there was be no change in the plans regarding my visit. I could not make out just how much this Mr. Noise, as he announced himself, knew of Akeley's researches and discoveries, though it seemed to me that his casual manner stamped him a comparative outsider. Remembering what a hermit Akeley had been, I was a trifle surprised at the ready availability at such a friend, but 
did not let my puzzlement hinder me from entering the motor to which he gestured me. It was not the small ancient car I expected from Akeley's depictions, but a large, immaculate specimen of twice-pattern, apparently noise-own, and bearing Massachusetts license plate, with the amusing sacred codfish device of that year. My guide, I concluded, must be a summer transient in the townshed area. Noise climbed into the car beside me and started at once. I was glad he did not overflow with conversation, for some particular atmospheric intensity made me feel disinclined to talk. The town seemed very attractive in the afternoon sunlight as we swept up in an incline and turned to the right in the main street. It drows like older New England cities, which one remembers from boyhood, and something in the co-location of the roofs and steeples and, st- and chimneys and brick walls formed contours, touching deep feel strings of ancestral emotion. I could tell that I was at the gateway of a region half-bewitched through the piling of unbroken time accumulation, a region where old strange things have had a chance to grow and linger because they had never been stirred up. We passed out of Brattleboro. My sense of constraint and foreboding increased, for a vague quality in the hill-crowned countryside, with its towering, threatening, close-pressed green and granite slopes, hinted at obscure secrets and immemorial survivals, which might or might not be hostile to mankind. For a time, our course followed a broad, shallow river which flowed down from unknown hills in the north. I shivered when my companion told me that it was West River. It was in this stream I recalled from newspaper items that one of the morbid crab-like beings had been seen floating after the floods. Gradually, the country around it grew wilder and more deserted. Archaic covered bridges lingered fearsomely out of the past in pockets of the hills. An half-abandoned railway track paralleling the river seemed to exhale a nebulously visible air of desolation. There were awesome sweeps of the vivid valley where cliffs rose, New England's virgin granite showing gray and austere through the verdure that scaled the crest. There were gorges where untamed streams leaped, bearing down towards the river. The unimagined secrets of a thousand pathless peaks branching away, and from there, branching away now, and then were narrow, half-concealed roads that bore their way through solid, luxuriant masses of forests among those among whose primal trees whole armies of elemental spirits might lurk. As I saw these, I thought of how Akeley had been molested by unseen agents on his drive along this very route, and did not wonder that such things could be. Quaint, slightly village of Newfane, reached in less than half an hour, was our last link 
of that world which man could definitely call his own by virtue of conquest, complete occupancy. After that, we cast off all allegiance to immediate, tangible, and time-touched things, and entered a fantastic world of hushed unreality, which the narrow ribbon-like road rose and fell and curved with an almost sentient and purpose carapace amidst the tenantless green peaks and half-deserted valleys, except for the sound of the motor and the faint stirring of the few lonely farms we passed at infrequent, at infrequent intervals. The only thing that reached my ears was the gurgling, insidious trickle of strange waters from numberless hidden fountains in the shadowy woods. The nearness and intimacy of the dwarfed domed hills now became invariably breathtaking. Their steepness and abruptness were even greater than I imagined from hearsay, and suggested none in common with the prosaic objective world we knew. The dense unvisited woods on those inaccessible slopes seemed to harbor alien and incredible things, and I felt that the very outlines of the hills themselves held some strange and aeon-forgotten meaning, as if they were vast hieroglyphs left by the rumored titan races who glories only live in rare deep dreams. All the legend of the past in the stupefying impotences of Henry Akeley's letters and exhibit welled up in my memory to heighten the atmosphere of tension and growing menace. The purpose of my visit and the frightful abnormalities it postulated struck me at once all a chill sensation that nearly overbalanced my ardour for strange dwellings. My guide must have noticed my disturbed attitude, for the road grew more wilder and more irregular, and our motion slower and more jolting. His occasional pleasant comment expanded into a steadier flow of discourse. He spoke of the beauty and weirdness of the country, and revealed some acquaintances with folklore and studies of my prospective host. From his polite questions, it was obvious he knew I had come for a scientific purpose, and, and that I was bringing data of some importance, but he gave no signs of appreciating the depths and wakefulness of the knowledge which Akeley had finally reached. His manner, so cheerful, normal, and urbane, that his remarks ought to have calmed and reassured me. But oddly enough, I felt only the more disturbed as we bumped and veered onward onto the unknown wilderness of hills and wood. At times it seemed as if he was bumping me to see what I knew of the monstrous secrets of the place. And with every fresh utterance, that vague, teasing, baffling familiarity in his voice increased. It was not an ordinary or healthy familiarity despite the thorough, wholesome, and cultivated nature of the voice. I somehow linked it with forgotten nightmares and felt that I might go mad if I recognized it. If any good excuse existed, I think I would have turned back from my visit. As it was, I could not well do, and it occurred to me that a cool scientific conversation with Akeley himself after my arrival would help greatly 
only together. Besides, there was a strangely calming element to the cosmic beauty in the hypnotic landscape, which reclimbed and plunged fantastically. Time has lost itself in the labyrinths, now behind and around us, stretched only the flowering waves of fairy and the recaptured loveliness of vanished centuries, the hoary groves, the untainted pastures, edged with gay, upturnal blossom, and at vast intervals, the small brown farmsteads nestling amongst huge trees beneath vertical precipices of fragrant briar and meadow grasses. Even the sunlight assumed a supernatural glamour, as if some special atmosphere or exhalation mantled the whole region. I had felt like nothing before it, save in the magic vistas that sometimes form the backgrounds of Italian primitive Sondona and in Leonardo conceived such expanses, but only in the distances and through the vaultings of Renaissance arcades. We were now burrowing boldly through the midst of the picture, and I seemed to follow its necromancy, a thing I had intimately known or inherited, for which I had always been vainly searching. Suddenly, after rounding an obtuse angle on the top of a sharp accent, the car came to a standstill. On my left, across a well-kept lawn, which stretched to the road, wanted a border of whitewashed stone, rose a white two-and-a-half-story house of unusual size and elegance for the region with a congeries of congeries, or arcade-link barn, sheds, windmills behind and to the right. I recognized that at once from the snapshot, and I risked from the snapshot I received, I was not surprised to see the name of Henry Akeley on the galvanized iron mailbox near the road. For some disturbances, back of the house, a level stench of marshy and sparsely wooded area extended, beyond which soared a steep, thickly forested hillside, ending in a jagged leafy crest. This ladder, I knew, was the summit of Dark Mountain, halfway up, which we must have climbed already. A light from the car, and taking my valise, Noise asked me to wait while he went inside and notified Akeley of my advent. He himself, he added, had an important business elsewhere. It would not stop for more than a moment. As he briskly walked up the path to the house, I climbed out of the car myself, wishing to stretch my legs a little before settling down in a sedentary conversation. My feeling of nervousness and tension had risen to a maximum again, now that I was on the actual scene of the morbid, beleaguering, described so hauntedly in Akeley's letters. I honestly dreaded the coming discussions, which were to link me with such alien and forbidden worlds. Close contact with the utterly bizarre is more often terrifying than inspiring, but it did not cheer me to think that this very bit of dusty road was the place whose monstrous tracks and bedded green ichor could be found after moonless night of fear and death. Idly, I noticed that none of Akeley's dogs seemed to be about. Had he sold 
all of them as soon as the Elder Ones made peace with them? Might as I try, I could not have the same confidence in the depth of sincerity of that piece, which appeared in Akeley's final and queerly different letter. After all, he was a man of much simplicity, with little worldly experience. Was there not, perhaps, some deep and sinister undercurrent beneath the surface of the new alliance? Led by my thoughts, my eyes turned downward to the powdery road surface which had held such hideous testimonies. The last few days had been dry, and the tracks of all sorts cluttered the rutted irregular highway, despite the infrequent nature of the district. With a vague curiosity, I had begun to trace the outline of some of the heterogeneous impressions, trying to curb the flights of macabre fancy, which the place in its memory suggested. There was something menacing and uncomfortable in the funeral stillness, in the muffled subtle tracks of distant brooks, and the crowding green peaks and the black wooded precipices that choked the narrow horizon. And then an image shot to my consciousness, which made those vague memories and flights of fancy seem mild and insignificant indeed. I had said that I was scanning the mis miscellaneous prints in the road with some kind of idle curiosity, but then all at once the curiosity was shockingly snuffed out by a sudden and paralyzing gust of active terror, for though the dust tracks were in general confused and overlapping, and unlikely to arrest any casual glance, my restless vision had caught certain details near the spot of the path to the house that joined the highway, and recognized beyond a doubts or hopes the frightful significance of those details. It was not for nothing at last that I poured for hours over the Kodak views of the Outer One claw prints which Jakely had sent. Too well I knew the marks of those loathsome nippers in the hint of ambiguous direction which stamped the horrors as no creature of this planet. No chance had left me for merciful mistake. Here indeed, in objective form before my own eyes, surely made not merely hours ago, were at least three marks which stood out blasphemously among this surprising plethora of blurred footprints leading to and from the Akeley farmhouse. There were the hellish tracks of the living fungi from Yagoth. I pulled myself together in time to stifle a scream. After all, what more was there than I might expect it? Assuming that I really believed Akeley's letters, he had spoken of making peace with the thing. Why then, was it strange that some of them had visited his house? But the terror was stronger than the reassurance. Could any man be expected to look unmoved for the first time upon the claw marks of animate beings from outer depth of space? Just then, I saw noise emerge from the door and approach with a brisk step. I must, I reflected keep command of myself, for the chance this genial friend knew nothing of Akeley's profoundest and most stupendous probing into the forbidden. Akeley, noise, hastened to inform me, was glad and ready to see me. Although his sudden attack of asthma would prevent him from being a very competent host for a day or two, 
These spells hit him hard when they came, and they were almost accompanied by debilitating fever and general weakness. He was never good for much while they lasted, and had talked in a whisper, and was very clumsy and feeble in getting about. His feet and ankles swelled too, so that he had to bandage them like a gouty old beefeater. Today, he was in rather a bad shape, so that I might have to attend very largely to my own needs, but he was none the less eager for conversation. I would find him in the study at the left of the front hall, the room where the blinds were shut. He had to keep sunlight out when he was ill, for his eyes were very sensitive. As noise bade me do and rode off northward in his car, I began to walk slowly towards the house. The door had been left ajar for me, but before approaching and entering, I cast a searching glance around the whole place, trying to decide what had struck me so intangibly queer about it. The barns and shit looked trimly prosaic enough, and I noticed Akeley's battered board in his capricious, unguarded shelter. Then, the secret of the queerness reached me. It was the total silence. Ordinarily, a farm is at least moderately murmurous from the various kinds of livestock, but here all signs of life were missing. What of the hens and the hog, the crows, which Akeley had said he possessed several, might conceivably be out to pasture, and the dog might possibly be been sold, but the absence of any cackling or grunting was really particular. I did not pause long on the path, but resolutely entered the open house door and closed it behind me. It had a cost. It had cost me a distinct psychological effort to do so, and now that I was shut inside, I had a momentary longing for, for precipitate retreat. Not for the place was in the most sinister in visual suggestion. On the contrary, I thought the graceful late colonial hallway was very tasteful and wholesome, and admired the evident breeding of the man who had furnished it. What made me wish to flee was something very attuned and indefinable. Perhaps it was a certain odd odor, which I thought I noticed. Well, though I well knew how common musty odors were even in the best of ancient farmhouses. Chapter 7 Refusing to let these cloudy qualms overmaster me. I recalled Noise's instructions and pushed open the six-paneled, brass-latched white door on my left. The room beyond was darkened, as I had known before, and as I entered it, I noticed the queer odor was stronger there. There, likewise, appeared to be some faint, half-imaginary rhythm or vibration in the air. For a moment, the closed blinds allowed me to see very little. But then, a kind of apologetic hacking or whispering sound drew my attention to a great easy chair in the further, darker corner of the room. Within its shadowy depths, I found the white blur of a man's face and hands, and in a moment, I crossed to greet the figure who tried to speak. Dim through the light was, I perceived that this was indeed my host. I had studied the Kodak picture repeatedly, and there's no mistake about this firm, weather-beaten face and cropped, grizzled beard. But as I looked again, my recognition was mixed with sadness and anxiety, for certainly this face was of a very sick man. I felt that there must be something more 
than asthma behind that strained, rigid, immobile expression, an unwinking, glassy stare. I realized how terribly the strain of his frightful experiences must have told on him. Was it not enough to break any human being, even a younger man than this intrepid Dwelver, into the Forbidden? The strange and sudden relief I feared had come too late to save him from something like a general breakdown. There was a touch of the pitiful in the limp, lifeless way his lean hands rested in his lap. He had on a loose dressing gown and was swathed from head and high around the neck with a vivid yellow scarf or hood. Then I saw he was trying to talk in the same hacking whisper that which he had greeted me. It was a hard whisper to catch at first, since the gray mustache concealed all movements of the lips, and something in its timbre disturbed me greatly. But by concentrating my attention, I could soon make out his portent surprisingly well. The accent was by no means a rustic one, and the language was, was even more polished than correspondence had led me to expect. Mr. Wilmoth, I presume? You must pardon me for not rising. I am quite ill, as Mr. Noise must have told you, but I could not resist having you come just the same. You know that I wrote in my last letter. There's so much to tell you tomorrow, when I shall feel better. I cannot tell you how glad I am to see you in person after our many letters. You have the file with you, of course, and the Kodak prints and record. Noise put your valets in the hall. I suppose you saw it. For tonight, I fear you must wait on yourself to a great extent. Your room is upstairs, the one over this. You'll see the bathroom door open at the head of the staircase. There's a mill spread for you in the dining room, right through this door on your right, which you can take whenever you feel like. I'll be a better host tomorrow, but for now, weakness leaves me helpless. Make yourself at home. You may take out the letters and pictures and records and put them on the table over here before you go upstairs with your bag. It is here that we shall discuss them. You can see my phonograph at that corner stand. No thanks, there is nothing you can do for me. I know these spells of old. Just come back for a little quiet visiting for the night, and go to bed when you please. I'll rest right here, perhaps sleep here all night as I often do. In the morning, I'll be far better too. Go into the thing you must go into. You realize, of course, the utterly stupendous nature of the matter before us. To us, only a few men on this earth, there will be opened up gulfs of time and space and of knowledge beyond anything within the concepts of human science and philosophy. Do you know that Einstein is wrong and certain forces can move with velocity greater than that of light? With proper aid, I expect to go backwards and forwards in time and actually see and feel the earth of remote past and future epochs. You cannot imagine the degree to which those beings had carried science. There is nothing they can't do with the mind and body of living organisms. I expect to visit other planets and even other stars and galaxies. The first trip will be to Yogoth. 
the nearest world, fully peopled with beings. It is a strange dark orb at the very rim of our solar system, unknown and unearthly astronomers as yet. But I must have written to you about this, or at the proper time, you know, the beings will will direct thought currents towards us and cause it to be discovered. Or perhaps let one of their human allies give the scientists a hint. There are mighty series on your goth. Great tiers of terrace towers built on black stone, like the specimen I tried to send you. That came from your goth. The sun shines there. It's no brighter than a star. But the beings need no light. They have other subtler senses, and put to no words their great houses and temples. Light even seems to hurt and hamper and confuses them, for it does not exist at all in the black cosmos outside time and space where they come from originally. To visit Yogoth would drive any weak-willed man mad, yet I am going there. The black rivers of pitch that flow under those mysterious cyclopean bridges, things built by some other race extinct and forgotten. Before the beings came, Yogoth from the ultimate void ought be enough to make any man a Dante or a Poe, if he can keep saying long enough to tell what he had seen. But remember that world of fungi gardens and windowless cities isn't really terrible. It was only to us that it would seem so. Probably this world seemed just as terrible to the beings when they first explored it in the primal age. You know, they were here long before the fabulous epoch of Cthulhu was over. And remember all about the sunken relay when it was above the waters. They have been inside the earth too. There are openings which human beings know nothing of. Some of them in these very Vermont hills, in great worlds of unknown life down there, blue litten Kian Yan, red litten Yoth, black lightless Nakai. It's from Nakai that the frightful Seth Gogoth came. You know the amorphous toad like god mentioned in the Totic manuscripts and the Necronomicon in the Camarion myth cycle preserved by the Atlantean High Priestess, Karl Kosh Tan. But we will talk about all of this later. Must be four or five o'clock this time. Better bring the stuff from your bag and take a bite and come back for a comfortable chat. Very slowly, I turned and began to obey my host, fetching my valise, extracting and depositing those desired articles, and finally ascending to the room, designated as mine. With the memory of that roach-side Paw print fresh in my mind. Akeley's whispered paragraphs had affected me queerly. In the hints of familiarity with this unknown world of fungus life, forbidden Yogoth made my flesh creep more and more than I cared to own. I was tremendously sorry about Akeley's illness, but had to confess that his hoarse whisper had a hateful as well as pitiful quality. If only you wouldn't gloat so much about Yogoth and its black secrets. My room proved a very pleasant and well-furnished one, devoid alike of musty odor and, and disturbing scents of 
vibration, and after leaving my valise there, I send it again to greet Akeley and take the lunch she had set out for me. The dining room was just beyond the study, and I saw a kitchenelle extended much further and the same distance. On the dining table, a ample array of sandwiches, cakes, and cheeses raided me. A thermos bottle beside a cup and a saucer testified to be hot coffee had not been forgotten. After a real relished meal, I poured myself a liberal cup of coffee, but found that a culinary standard had suffered a lapse in this one detail. The first spoonful revealed a faintly unpleasant acrid taste, so that it did not take more. Throughout the lunch, I thought of Akeley sitting silently in the great chair in the darkened next room. Once I went in to see him to share the repast, but he whispered that he could eat nothing as of yet. Later on, just before he slept, he would take some molten milk, all he ought to have that day. After lunch, I insisted on clearing the dishes away and washing them in the kitchen sink, incidentally emptying the coffee, which I had not been able to appreciate. Then returning to the darkened study, I threw up a chair near my host's corner and prepared for such conversation as he might feel inclined to conduct. The letters, the pictures, the was still on the large center table. But for the nonce, we did not have to draw it upon them. Before long, I've forgotten the bizarre odor and curious suggestions of vibration. I have said that there were things in some of Akeley's letters, especially the second, most voluminous one, which I would not dare quote or even form into words on paper. This hesitancy applies with all still greater forces to the things I have heard whispered that evening in the darkened room along the lonely haunted hills of the extent of the cosmic war unfolded by that raucous voice I cannot even hint he had known hideous things before but what he had learned since making his pact with the outside things was almost too much sanity to beat. I absolutely refused to believe what he had implied about the construction of ultimate infinity, the juxtaposition of dimensions, and the fearful position of our known cosmos of space and time, and the unending chain of linked cosmos atoms which make up the immediate supercosmos of curves, angles, and material, and the semi-material electronic organization. Never was a sane man more dangerously close to the arcana of basic entity, was never an organic brain nearer to utter annihilation in the chaos that transcends form and force and symmetry. I learned whence Cthulhu first came and why half the great temporary stats of history had flared forth, I guess from hence, made even my informant pause timidly. The secrets behind the magellic cloud and the globular nebulae and the black truth veiled by the immoral allegory of Tao. The nature of the dolls were plainly revealed and I was told the essence, though not of the source. The hounds of Tendulos and the legend of Yig, father of serpents, remained figurative no longer. I started with loathing, 
when told of a monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space, which the Necronomicon had mercifully cloaked under the name as Azathoth. It was so shocking to have the foulest nightmares of secret myths cleared up in concrete terms whose stark, morbid hatefulness extended to the boldest hints of ancient and medieval mystics. Inclusively, I was led to believe that the first whispers of these accursed tales must have had discourse with Achilles' outer ones, and perhaps had visited outer cosmic realms as Achilles now purported visiting them. I was told of the Black Stone, and what it implied, and was glad that it had not reached me. My guesses about these hieroglyphics had been all too correct, and Akeley now seemed reconciled with the fiendish system he had stumbled upon, reconciled and eager to probe further into the monstrous abyss. I wondered what beings he had talked with since his letter to me. Rather, many of them had been as human as the first emissary he had mentioned, the tension in my head grew insufferable, and I built up all sorts of wild theories about the queer, persistent odor and those insidious hints of vibrations in the darkened room. For the first time, one of the inert, wasted hands raised itself and pointed stiffly to a high shelf on the further side of the room. There, in a neat row, stood more than a dozen cylinders of metal I've never seen before. The cylinder is about a foot high and somewhat less in diameter, with three curious sockets set in a isosceles triangle over the front convex surface of each. One of them was linked at two of the sockets with a pair of singular-looking machines that stood in the background of their portents. I did not need to be told, and I shivered with ague when I saw the hand point to a nearer corner where some intricate instruments with attached cords and plugs, several of them much like the two devices on the shelf behind the cylinders, was huddled together. There are four kinds of instruments here, Ormoth whispered the voice. Four kinds, three faculties each, makes twelve in all. You see, there are four different sorts of beings presented in the cylinders there. Three humans, six fungoids who can't navigate space corporally. Two beings from Neptune. God, if you can see the body this type had on its own planet. And the rest of the entities from the central caverns of a especially interesting dark star beyond the galaxy in the principal outpost outside Round Hill. You'll now and then find more cylinders and machines. Cylinders of extra cosmic brains and with different senses from any we know. Allies and explorers from the outermost outside and special machines for giving expression in various ways suited once to them to the the comprehensions of different types of listeners round hill like the other being main outpost all throughout various universes it's a very cosmopolitan place 
Of course, only the more common types have been lent to me for experiment. Here, take the three machines I pointed out and set them on the table. The tall one with the two glass lenses in front, then the box with the vacuum tubes and, and sounding board, and the label B-67 pasted on it. Just stand in that Windsor chair to reach the shelf. Heavy? Never mind. Be sure of the number B-67. Don't bother the fresh, shiny tube. Join to the two testing instruments, the one with my name on it. Set B-67 on the table near where you have put the machines, and see that the dial switch on all three machines is jammed over to the extreme left. Now connect the cord of the lens machine with the upper sockets on the cylinders there. Join the tubes machine to the lower left socket in the disc apparatus to the outer socket. Now move all the dials in the machine to the extreme right. First the lens one, then the disc one, then the tube one. That's right. Might I as well tell you that this is a human being, just like any of us. I'll give you a taste of some more of the others tomorrow. To this day, I do not know why I obeyed those whispers so slavishly, or why I thought Akeley was mad or sane. After what had gone on, I ought to have been prepared for anything. But this mechanized memory seemed so like the typical vagaries of crazed inventors and scientists that it struck a chord of doubt, which even the preceding discourse had not excited. What the whisperer implied was beyond all human belief. Yet, were not those other things still further beyond, less preposterous, only because of their remoteness from the tangibility of concrete proof? As my mind reeled amidst this chaos, I became conscious of a mixed grating and whirring from all three of the machines lately linked to the cylinders, a grating and whirring, which soon subsided into virtual noiselessness. What was about to happen? Was I to hear a voice? If so, what proof would I have that it was not some cleverly concocted radio device, talked into by a concealed but closely watching speaker? Even now, I am unwilling to swear just what I heard, or a phenomenon really took place before me. But something certainly seemed to take place. To be brief and plain, the machine with the tubes and sounding box began to speak with a point in intelligence which left no doubt that the speaker was actually present and observing us. The voice was very loud and metallic, lifeless, and plainly mechanized as every detail as its of its production. It was incapable of inflection or expressionless, but scraped and rattled with the deadly precision and deliberateness. Mr. Marth, I hope I do not startle you. I am a human being like yourself. Though my body is now resting safely under proper vitalizing treatment inside Round Hill, about a mile and a half east from here, I myself am here with you. My brain is in the cylinder, you see, and I see, hear, and speak 
through those electronic vibrators. In a week, I am going across the void as I have been many times before, and I expect to have the pleasure of Mr. Akeley's company. I wish I might have yours as well, for I know you by sight and reputation, and I kept close tracks of your correspondence with our friends. I am, of course, one of the men who had become allied with the outside thing visiting our planets. I met them at first in the Himalayas and helped them in various ways. In return, they had given me experiences such as few men have ever had. Do you realize what it means when I say I have been on 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects, including eight outside of our galaxy and two outside the curved cosmos of space and time? All of this has not harmed me in the least. My brain has been removed from my body by fission so adroit that it would be crude to call the operation surgery. The visiting beings have methods of making these extractions easy, almost normal. The one body's never ages when the brain is out of it. The brain, I may add, is virtually immortal with its mechanical faculties and limited nourishment supplied by occasional changes of preserving fluid. Altogether, I hope most heartily that you decide to come with Mr. Akeley and me. The visitors are eager to know men of knowledge like yourself and to shew them the great abysses that most of us had to dream about in fanciful ignorance. It may seem strange at first to meet them, but I know you will be above minding that. I think Mr. Noise will go along too. The man who doubtlessly brought you up here in his car. He has been one of us for years. I suppose you recognize his voice on one of those records Mr. Akeley sent you. At my violent start, the speaker paused a moment for concluding. So, Mr. Wilmarth, I will leave the matter to you, merely adding that a man with your love of strangeness and folklore ought never to miss a chance like this. There's nothing to fear. All transitions are painless, and there's much to enjoy in a wholly mechanized state of sensation. When the electrodes are disconnected, one merely drops off into a sleep of especially vivid and fantastic dreams. And now, if you don't mind, we must adjourn our session until tomorrow. Good night. Just turn all the switches back to the left. Never mind the exact order. Though you might want to let the lenses of the machine be last. Good night, Mr. Akeley. Treat our guest well. Ready now with those switches? That was all. I obeyed mechanically and shut off all three switches. Though dazed with doubts of everything, my head was still reeling as I heard Akeley's whispering voice telling me that I might leave all the apparatuses on the table just as it was. He did not essay any comments on what had happened, but indeed no comment could have conveyed much to my burdened 
faculties. I heard him telling me I could take the lamp to my room and deduce that he wished to rest alone in the dark. It was surely time he rested, for his discourse of the afternoon and evening had been much to exhaust even a vigorous man. Still dazed, I bade my host good night and went upstairs with the lamp, although I had an excellent pocket flashlight with me. I was glad to be out of that downstairs study with the queer odor and vague suggestions of vibration, yet could not, of course, escape the hideous sense of dread and peril and cosmic abnormality as I thought of the place I was in and the forces I was meeting. The wild, lonely region, the black, mysterious, forested slope towering so close behind the house, the footprints in the road, and the sick, motionless whisperer in the dark, the hellish cylinders in the machine, and above all, the invitation to the strange surgery and stranger voyaging. These things so new, in such sudden succession, rushed in on me with a cumulative force which sapped my will and almost undermined my physical strength. To discover that my guide noise was a human collaborance with the monstrous bygone Sabat ritual on the phonograph record was a particular shock, though I had previously sensed a dim, repellent familiarity with his voice. Another special shock came from my own attitude towards my host whenever I paused to analyze it. For as much as I had instinctively liked Gakely, as revealed in his correspondence, I find that he fills me with a distinct repulsion. His illness might have excited my pity, but instead it gave me a kind of shudder. He was so rigid and inert and corpse-like, and that incessant whispering was so hateful and inhuman. It occurred to me that the whispering was different from anything of the kind I had ever heard. Despite the curious motionlessness of the speaker's mustache, screen lips, it had a latent strength and carrying power remarkable for the wheezing of an asthmatic. I had been able to understand the speaker when fully across the room, and once or twice it seemed to me that the faint but particular sound represented not so much to me, that of the faint but protuberant sound manifested not so much weakness as deliberate repression. For what reason, I cannot guess. From the first, I felt a disturbing quality in their timbre. But now, when I tired to weigh the manner, I thought I could trace this impression to a kind of subconscious familiarity like that which made Noise's voice so hastily ominous. But when, or where, I had encountered the thing, is hinted at even more than I could tell. One thing was certain. I could not spend another night here. My scientific zeal had vanished amidst fear and loathing. I felt nothing now but a wish to escape from this net of morbidity and unnatural revelation. When I knew enough that it must indeed be true that cosmic linkages do exist, but such things are surely not meant for normal human beings to meddle with. Blasphemous influences seem to surround me 
and pressed chokingly upon my senses. Sleep, I decided, would be out of the question. So I extinguished the lamp and threw myself onto the bed fully dressed. No doubt it was absurd, but I kept ready for some unknown emergency, gripping in my right hand the revolver which I had brought along, holding the pocket flashlight in my left hand. Not a sound came from below, and I could imagine how my host was sitting there with a cavernous stiffness in the dark. Somewhere I heard a clock ticking, and vaguely grateful for the normality of the noise. It reminded me, though, of another thing about the region which disturbed me, the total absence of animal life. There was certainly no farm beast about. Now I realized that the accustomed night noises of the wild living things were absent, except for the sinister trickle of a distant, unseen water, which stillness was anomalous, interplanetary, and I thought what star spawned an intangible blight might be hanging over the region. I recall from the old legends that the dogs and the other beasts hated the outer ones, and the thought of what those tracks in the road might mean. Chapter 8. Do not ask me how long my unexpected lapse into slumber lasted, or how much of what ensued was sheer dream. If I could tell you that I awakened at a certain time, and heard and saw certain things, you would merely answer that I did not wake then and that everything was a dream, until the moment I rushed out of the house, stumbled upon the shed where I had seen the old Ford, and seized that ancient vehicle for a mad aimless race over the haunted hills which at last landed me. After hours of jolting and winding through the forest-threatened labyrinths in a village which turned out to be Townshend. You will also, of course, discount everything else in my report and declare that all the pictures, record sound, cylinder, and machine sounds, and kindred evidences were bits of pure deception practiced on me by the missing Henry Akeley, and you will even hint that he conspired with other eccentrics to carry out a silly elaborate hoax, that he had the express shipment removed at Keene and he had noise make that terrifying wax cylinder. It is odd, though, that noise had not even yet been identified, that he was unknown at any of the villages near Akeley's place, though he must have been frequently in the region. I wish I had stopped to memorize the license number of his car, or perhaps it is better after all I did not, for I, despite all you can say, and despite all, I sometimes try to say to myself, know that loathsome outside influences must be lurking there in the half-known hills, and that those influences have spies and emissaries in the worlds of men. To keep as far as possible from such influences and such emissaries is all I ask of a life. When my frantic story sent a sheriff's posse, out to the farmhouse. Akeley was gone without leaving a trace. His loose dressing gown, yellow scarf, and foot bandages lie on the study floor near his corner easy chair, but it could not be decided whether any of his other apparel had vanished with him. 
the dogs and livestock were indeed missing, and there were some curious bullet holes, both on the house exterior and some of the walls within. But beyond this, nothing unusual could be detected. No cylinders or machines, none of the evidences I brought in my fillets, no queer odor or vibration sense, no footprint in the roads, and none of the problematic things I glimpsed at the very last. I stayed in Rattleboro after my escape, making inquiries among people of every kind who had known Akeley, and the result convinced me that the matter is no figment of dream or delusion. Akeley's queer purchases of dogs and ammunitions and chemicals and the cutting of his telephone wires were manners of record. While all who knew him, including his son in California, conceded his occasional remarks on strange studies so they had certain consistencies, conceded that his occasional remarks on strange studies had a certain consistency. Solid citizens believe he was mad and unhesitatingly pronounce all reported evidence mere hoax devised with insane cunning and perhaps abetted by eccentric associates. But the lowlier country folk sustained his statements in every detail. He shooed some of these rustics, his photographs in black stone, and played the hideous record for them. And they all said the footprints and buzzings were like those described in each in ancestral legends. But I still have to tell the ending of that terrible night in the farmhouse. As I have said, as I have said, I did finally drop into a troubled doze, a doze filled with bits of dream which involved monstrous landscape glimpses. Just what awakened me, I cannot yet say. But that I did indeed wake up at this given point, I feel certain. At first confused impression was of stealthily creaking floorboards in the hall outside my door, and a clumsy, muffled fumbling at the latch. This, however, ceased almost at once, so that my really clear impressions begins with the voices heard from the study below. There seemed to be several speakers, and I judged that they were conversationally engaged. By the time I listened a few seconds, I was broad awake, for the nature of the voices was such to make all thought of sleep ridiculous. The tones were curiously varied, and no one who had listened to that accursed phonograph would harbor any doubts of the nature of at least two of them. Hideous though the idea, I knew that I was under the same roof with nameless things from abysmal space. For those two voices were unmistakably the blasphemous buzzings which the outside beings used in their communication with men. The two were individually different, different in pitch, accent, and tempo, but they were both the same damnable general kind. A third voice was indubitably that of mechanical utterance machine connected to one of the detached brains in the cylinder. There was as little doubt of that as about the buzzings, for a loud, mechanical, lifeless voice of the previous evening, its inflectionless, expressionless, scraping and rattling, impersonal precision and deliberation, 
That had been utterly unforgivable. For a time, I did not pause to question whether the intelligence behind that scraping was the identical one which had formerly talked to me. But surely after I reflected that any brain would emit vocal sounds of the same quality if linked to the same mechanical speech producer. The only possible difference being in language, rhythm, speed, and pronunciation. To complete the Eldritch colloquy, there was two actual human voices. One crude speech of an unknown and evidently rustic man, and the other suave Bostonian tones of my erstwhile guide, Noise. As I tried to catch the words, which the stoutly fashioned floor so bafflingly intercepted. I was also conscious of a great deal of stirring and scratching and shuffling in the room below, so that I could not escape the impression that it was full of living beings, many more than the few whose speech I could single out. The exact nature of this stirring is extremely hard to describe, for very few good bases of comparison exist. Objects seem now and then to move across the room like conscious entities, the sound of their footfalls having something about it like a loose, hard surface clattering, as of contact of ill-coordinated surfaces of horns or hard rubber. It was to use more concrete but less accurate comparison, as if people with loose, splintery wooden shoes were scrambling and rattling about on the hard, polished board floor of a nature and appearance of those who responsible for the sounds. I could not speculate. Before long, I saw that it would be impossible to distinguish any connected discourse, isolated words, including the names of Akeley and myself, now and then floated up, especially when uttered by the mechanical speech producer. But their true significance was lost for want of continuous context. Today I refuse to form any definite deduction from them, and even their frightful effect on me was one of suggestion rather than revelation. A terrible and abnormal conclave, I feel certain was assembled below me. But for what shocking deliberations, I could not tell. It was curious how this unquestioned sense of the maligned and blasphemous pervaded me despite Akeley's assurance of the outsider's friendliness. With patient listening, I began to distinguish clearly between the voices, even though I could not grasp much of any of the voices said. I seemed to catch certain typical emotions behind some of the speakers. One of the buzzing voices, for example, held a unmistakable note of authority, whilst the mechanical voice, notwithstanding its artificial loudness and irregularity, seemed to be in a position of subordination and pleading. Noise tones exuded a conciliary atmosphere. The others, I could make no attempt to interpret. I could not hear the familiar whisper of Akeley, but knew well that such a sound would never penetrate the solid flooring of my room. I will try to set down some of the disjointed words and other sounds I caught, labeling the speakers of the words best I know, and from the speech machines I first picked up a few recognizable phrases. Brought it upon myself, sent 
back the letters in the record. End on it. Taken in. Seeing and hearing. Damn you. Impersonal force, after all. Fresh, shiny, cylinder. Great God. Time we stop. Small and human. Achly. Brain. Saying. Alathotep. Wilmarth. Records and letters. Cheap imposture. Nagal. Katsun. Harmless. Peace. Couple of weeks. Theatrical. Told you that before. No reason. Original plan. Noise can watch. Round hill. Fresh cylinder. Noises car. Well, all ears down here. Rest. Peace. Several voices at once. An indistinguishable speech. Many footprints, including the particular loose stirring or clattering. A curious sort of flapping sounds. The sound of an automobile starting and receding. Silence. That is the substance of what my ears brought me as I lay rigid upon the strange upstairs bed that haunted in the haunted farmhouse among the demonic hills. Lie there, fully dressed, with a revolver clenched in my right hand and a pocket flashlight gripped in my left. I became, as I had said, broad awake, but in a kind of obscure paralysis, nevertheless kept me inert long after the last echoes of the sounds that died away. I heard the wood, deliberate ticking of the ancient kinetic clock somewhere far below, at last made out the irregular snoring of a sleeper. Akeley must have dozed off after the strange session, and I could well believe that he needed to do so. Just what to think, or what to do, was more than I could decide. After all, what I had heard beyond things which previous information might have led me to expect. Had not I known the nameless outsiders were freely admitted to the farmhouse, no doubt Akeley would have been surprised by an unexpected visit from them. Yet something in the fragmentary discourse had chilled me, immeasurably, raised the most grotesque and horrible doubts, and made me wish fervently that I might wake up and prove everything a dream. I think my subconscious mind must have caught something, which my consciousness had not yet recognized. But what of Akeley? Was he not my friend? And would he have not protested if any harm were meant to me? The peaceful snoring below seemed to cast ridicule on my suddenly intensified fears. Was it possible that Akeley had imposed upon and used as a lure to draw me into the hills with the letters and pictures and phonograph record? Did those beings mean to engulf both of us in a common destruction because we had come to know too much? Again, I thought of the abruptness and unnaturalness of the change in the situation which must have occurred between Akeley's penultimate and final letters. Something, my instinct told me, was terribly wrong. All was not as it seemed. The acrid coffee I refused. Had there not been an attempt by some hidden, unknown entity to drug it? I must talk to Akeley at once and restore his sense of proportion. They had hypnotized him with their promise of cosmic revelations. But now he must listen to reason. We must get out of this before it would be too late. If he lacked the willpower to make 
the break for liberty, I would supply it. Or if I could not persuade him to go, I could at least go myself. But surely he would let me take his Ford and leave it in a garage in Bro- at Battleboro. I had noticed it in the shed, and the door being left unlocked and open now, the peril was deemed pass, and I believe that there was a good chance of it being ready for instant use. That momentary dislike of Akeley, which I had during and after the evening conversations, was all gone now. He was in a position much like my own. We must stick together. Knowing his indisposed condition, I hated to wake him at this juncture, but I knew that I must. I could not stay in this place until the morning as matters stood. At last, I felt able to act and stretched myself vigorously to regain control of my muscles. Arising with a caution more impulsive than deliberate, I found and donned my hat, took my valets, and started downstairs with the flashlight's aid. In my nervousness, I kept the revolver clutched in my right hand, being able to take care of both valets and flashlight with my left. Why I exerted these precautions, I did not really know, since I was even then on my way to awaken the only other occupants of the house. As I half tiptoed down the creaking stairs to the lower hall, I could hear the sleeper more plainly and noticed that he must be in the room on my left, the living room. I had not entered. On my right was the gaping blackness of the study which I had heard the voices. Pushing open the unlatched door of the living room, I traced a path with the flashlight towards the source of the snoring, and finally turned the beam on the sleeper's face. But in the next second I hastily turned them away and commenced a cat-like retreat into the hall. My caution this time, springing from reason as well from instinct. For the sleeper on the couch was not Akeley at all, but my corndom guide noise. Just what the real situation was, I could not guess, but the common sense told me that the safest thing was to find as much as possible before arousing anyone. Regaining the hall, I silently closed and latched the living room door after me, thereby lessening the chance of awakening noise. I now cautiously entered the dark study, where I expected to find Akeley, rather asleep or awake, in the great corner chair, which was evidently his favorite resting place. As I advanced, the beam of my flashlight caught the great center table, revealing one of the hellish cylinders with sight and hearing machine attached, and with a speech machine standing close by, ready to be connected at any moment. This, I reflected, must be the encased brain I heard talking during the frightful conference, and for a second I had a perverse impulse to attach the speech machine and see what it would say. It must, I thought, be conscious of my presence even now, since the sight and hearing attachments could not fail to disclose the rays of my flashlight and the faint creaking of the floor beneath my feet, but in the end I did not dare meddle with the thing. I idly saw that the fresh shiny cylinder with Akeley's name on it, which I had noticed on the shelf earlier in the evening, which my host told me not to bother. Looking back at that moment, I could only regret my timidity and wish I had boldly caused the apparatus to speak. God knows 
what mysterious and horrible doubts and questions of identity it might have cleared up. But then, it may be merciful that I left it alone. From the table, I turned my flashlight to the corner, where I thought Akeley was, but found, to my perplexity, the great easy chair was empty of any human occupant, asleep or awake. From the seat to the floor trailed voluminously the familiar old dressing gown. Near it on the floor laid the yellow scarf and the huge foot bandages that I thought so odd. As I hesitated, striving to conjecture where Akeley might be and why he so suddenly discarded his necessary sick room garments, I observed the queer odor and sense of vibration were no longer in the room. What had been their cause, curiously, occurred to me, as I noticed them only in Akeley's vicinity. Then, they must have been stronger where he sat, and wholly absent except in the room, with him, or just outside the doors of that room. I paused, letting the flashlight wander about the dark study, racking my brains for explanations of the turn of affairs had taken. Would to heaven I quickly left the place before allowing that light to rest again on the vacant chair. As it turned out, I could not leave quietly, but a muffled shriek, which must have disturbed, though it did not quite awake, the sleeping sentinel across the hall. That shriek and noises still unbroken snore are the last sounds I ever heard in that morbidity-choked farmhouse beneath the blackwood crest of a haunted mountain. That focus of trance, cosmic horror, amidst the lonely green hills and curse-muttering brooks of a spectral rustic land. It is a wonder that I did not drop flashlights, fillets, and revolver in my wild scramble, but somehow I'd failed to loose any of these. I actually managed to get out of the room and that house without making any further noise, drag myself and my belongings safely into the old Ford in the shed, and set that archaic vehicle into motion towards some unknown point of safety in the black moonless night. The ride that followed was a piece of delirium out of Poe or Rembrandt or the drawings of Dor, but I finally reached Townshend, and that is all. If my sanity is still unshaken, I am lucky. Sometimes I fear that the years will bring, especially since the new planet Pluto had been curiously discovered. As I implied, I left my flashlight return to the vacant easy chair after its circuit of the room, then noticing for the first time the presence of certain objects in the seat, made inconspicuous by the adjacent loose folds of the empty dressing gown. These objects, three in number, were which the investigators did not find when they came later on. As I said on the outset, there's nothing of actual visual horror about them. The trouble was that they led one to infer, even now. I have moments of my half-doubts, moments which I half-expect the skepticism of those who attribute my whole experience to dream, nerves, and delusion. The three things were damnably clever constructions of their kind, and were furnished with ingenious metallic clamps 
to attach them to organic developments, which I dare not form any conjecture. I hope, devoutly hope, that they were waxen products of a master artist. Despite what my innermost fears tell me, great God, that whisper in the darkness, with its morbid odor and vibrations, sorcerer, emissary, changeling, outsider, that hideous, repressed buzzing, and all the time in that fresh, shiny cylinder on the shelf, poor devil, prodigious surgical, biological, chemical and mechanical skill, for the things on the chair, perfect to the last subtle detail of microscopic semblance for identity, were the face and hands of Henry Wentworth Ickley.